and welcome to In Search of Insight, Nootropics Depot's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Erica, or Nootropics Depot Guru, on Reddit, and sitting next to me is our product specialist, Emil. Hey everyone, and you can find me on Reddit under Pretty Chill. So this month, we are getting into a very exciting and sensual topic. We are going to be exploring horny goatweed and all of its fascinating nootropic mood and libido boosting benefits. But before we get into a deep conversation about horny goatweed and its mechanisms and how it's been used traditionally over thousands of years, we are going to tell you a little bit about the products that we have released since our last podcast episode dropped. So without further ado, we are going to get into our first segment of the podcast, which is new product releases. Our first new product release that we're going to chat about this morning is L-carnosine capsules. And this one is really fascinating to me because L-carnosine is a great supplement for increasing the length of telomeres. But Emil is a much better person to tell you about what a telomere is and why increasing the length of telomeres is important. Yeah, telomeres are a cap that fits onto the end of DNA, and when DNA replicates, a telomere basically prevents misreplications and things like that. As we age, though, the telomeres unravel and this cap becomes much less present, so that means our DNA has a, a, a higher likelihood of misreplicating, and this seems to underlie some of the more terminal aspects of aging, so when we really get to the end of our lives. And this is why enhancing telomere length or preventing telomere degradation is a really uh, popular strategy in the anti-aging community or the longevity community. And L-carnosine plays a role here because L-carnosine can help protect telomeres. And this activity is really important for making sure that telomeres don't unravel as we age. And and this is why L-carnosine is a really popular supplement for telomere health or longevity in general. It's not all that L-carnosine does, but this is a really interesting effect. And the effect on telomerase doesn't only extend to the aging effects, it actually also extends to some brain health effects. And there even seems to be a little bit of research looking at telomere length and mood. So there might be some interesting connections there. Fascinating. So L-carnosine can be a part of your arsenal of longevity supplements. And and one interesting thing too about having it in your arsenal is that it is endogenous. And I always really like endogenous compounds because they're already in your body. And all we are doing is really topping up their levels and really optimizing the effects of something that our body has always dealt with and, and knows what to do with. And there's maybe less chance for interactions and things like that. So I really like these endogenous compounds. And L-carnosine, as we age, the levels of L-carnosine drop. So it makes a lot of sense as we age to just supplement L-carnosine, not just for the telomerase or telomere effect, also because L-carnosine seems to have effects on metabolic health and how we process glucose and those sort of things. It has an effect on muscle function. So it's, it's a really important compound, and it's interesting too because it's a dipeptide, and we don't often see a whole lot of peptide-type compounds unless we are talking about endogenous compounds. So similarly, for example, glutathione is a tripeptide. 
L-carnosine is a dipeptide, so it's the two amino acids, histidine and beta-alanine. Those two come together, and then we have L-carnosine. Awesome. I love how the more that we talk about these endogenous compounds, the more I understand why it's beneficial to supplement these things uh, just outside of your diet and what your body is able to produce because endogenous compounds are already in your body. So it makes a lot of sense and it makes sense how these work together. So our next new product to discuss is DL-phenylalanine. And this one I'm a little bit less familiar with than L-carnosine. So Emil, tell us a little bit about this particular supplement. Yeah, phenylalanine is another really interesting one. And and similar in a sense to L-carnosine, it's not a compound that is endogenously produced in our bodies, but it's something that we get from our diet. So we call this an essential amino acid, an amino acid that our body can't produce, but we get from our diet and it's present all throughout our bodies and is a very important precursor to neurotransmitters, especially dopamine. So L-phenylalanine, similar to L-tyrosine, is a good precursor to dopamine synthesis, or good, they are the precursors for dopamine synthesis. So L-tyrosine goes through a slightly different pathway than L-phenylalanine, so they're nice and complementary in that sense too. But the interesting thing about D-L-phenylalanine is that it has two different forms of phenylalanine mixed together in a in a racemic mixture is what you call it so basically you're jogging my memory now yeah so we have right spinning and left spinning dextrorotatory and levorotatory yes and that's what the d and the l stand for so you can have l phenylalanine just pure or you can have d phenylalanine pure or you can have it in a racemic mixture, which is what we are looking at right now, D-L-phenylalanine. So what does the combination of the D and the L do in terms of this uh, supplement? Why is it beneficial to have both? The L form of this uh, amino acid is the precursor to dopamine and, and also norepinephrine more downstream. So you take this one mostly for that purpose. The D-phenylalanine, on the other hand, doesn't... Um, act as a precursor to dopamine and other neurotransmitters, but it is an inhibitor of an enzyme called encaphalinase, which breaks down things like endorphins. So when you go out for a run and you come back with this runner's high, this is usually a large amount of endorphins that you are experiencing. And taking something like D-L-phenylalanine or just pure D-phenylalanine, you can block this enzyme and you can get more of this endorphin basically without going for a run. So you can get this mood-boosting, pain-relieving effect from the D portion. So when you mix them, you get this very nice mood-boosting effect that's partnered with this pain-relieving effect. So D-phenylalanine and D-L-phenylalanine is actually something that's very popular with people looking for pain management supplements. Amazing. So in addition to pain management, it also sounds like D-L-phenylalanine is helping to allow more dopamine to be produced and allowing you to hold on to those positive, you know, warm, fuzzy-feeling endorphins, which sounds like a great combination to me. Yes. And actually, if you were to take something like D-L-phenylalanine before you go on a run or before you go and work out, the L-phenylalanine portion, uh, which is a precursor to dopamine, would give you a nice motivational focus stimulating effect. And the D-phenylalanine would kind of, and 
make this runner's high type feeling more pronounced. So taking it before a workout is probably a really nice way to utilize D-alphenylalanine. That's really cool. I never considered and wasn't really aware of what D-alphenylalanine was really supposed to be used for, but now I'm thinking it's probably a great uh, preparatory addition to like a morning stack before exercise. Amazing. So now we're going to move on to our next new product release, which is one in a series that we've carried for quite a while. It is Availom, but it's a new product. It's the Availom High DHA Vegan Friendly Algae Capsules. And I'm very excited about this because I think it's fascinating that we can get uh, DHA from vegan sources. And I think algae is an amazing and underutilized, uh, what would you call it, organism? Yeah, and and I totally agree there because algae is very fast growing. Um, I think you can have algae growth in as little as like 24 to 48 hours, which is why algae in the environment can also be a little bit uh, not so nice because it can create these algal blooms and it can stop light from getting into water and mess up fish life. So that's that's the, the ugly side of algae. But the good side of algae is that it grows really fast and it's a nice sustainable source of DHA. An alternative source of DHA to typical fish oil. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing too is there's not a whole lot of natural sources of DHA or just any sort of source of DHA outside of fish. Sure, it exists in various different foods, but high amounts of DHA you can't really find in other types of foods, which is why you often actually see that vegans and vegetarians are a little bit deficient in DHA. So having a vegan option for people who can't consume fish is really interesting as well. And that's why we brought out this this vegan alternative to fish oil. One for a nice sustainability kind of uh, supplement, a more sustainable source of DHA, and as a way that vegans and vegetarians who might actually need DHA more than non-vegans and vegetarians, uh, they now have an option. That's awesome. So what does DHA actually stand for? Oh, this is always one a question I dread. Doxohexanoic acid, I believe, is, is what DHA stands for. And it's a, an omega-3 fatty acid. Okay, awesome. And also, something we haven't mentioned here, actually, in the whole Avalom series. So Avalom does something really interesting, and it's one of the only powdered fish oil and, and algae oil products on the market now. But it's not just a powder. Making a powder out of uh, an oil is not that hard. You can just spray dry it with something like maltodextrin, but then you're not really enhancing anything. With Avalom, the drying process is done by complexing the fish oil with lysine and by doing this the bioavailability apparently goes up quite a bit so uh, Avalom claims it's about five times and I've been taking Avalom now because we've been having a bit of a, a fish oil shortage it seems like fish oil is hard to get hard to get good fish oil a lot of our fish oil supplements that we've carried for years or have been out of stock for a little while because the batches we are being sent are not meeting our spec so this is one other reason why we were really interested in Avalom, because Avalom is available, it's very stable, it tests well, and it has high levels of bioavailability, which you don't really see in other fish oil products. And taking the, the high EPA version, which we'll talk about in a second, 
I've noticed more pronounced effects from this fish oil. And the algal DHA and the fish oil-based DHA of Avalon products have this similar property. So I really like it for that reason. Very, very cool. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the effects that you're experiencing from the EPA capsules, but we'll talk about that once we get there. The next new product that we've released in this Avalon uh, series is the Avalon High DHA capsules. So these ones are coming, these capsules are fish oil from fish high DHA. So this is more of like your classic fish oil supplement, but with the enhanced bioavailability from Avalom's technology. What other features does the Avalom high DHA capsules have? The high DHA fish oil derived capsules also contain a good amount of EPA. This is something you don't Unfortunately, you don't get in the algae product, you don't get a high amount of EPA, the other important omega-3 fatty acid in fish oil. We haven't really figured out a way actually to to get EPA from a non-fish source. Um, But not to get too off topic here, with the DHA capsules fish oil derived, you're getting both a high amount of DHA and a relatively high amount of EPA, so it's a nice balanced fish oil like that too. But you definitely get some more DHA benefits there, and you get to take advantage of the the same bioavailability enhancement technology behind Avalon. Awesome. So now let's get into the next and the last new Avalon product we've released, which is the Avalon High EPA capsules. And the first question I have for you is, what does EPA stand for? This one's even harder than DHA, so let's see if I can get this one. I think it stands for Eicosapentaenoic Acid, EPA. All right, so why is Eicosapentaenoic Acid special for this particular Avalon product? EPA is is one of the other really important omega-3 fatty acids in addition to DHA. DHA being a little bit more present in the brain as part of like brain membranes, cellular membranes and things like that. EPA being more important, it seems, for cardiovascular health. This is something that Rhonda Patrick has recently been talking about quite a bit too, and she has some podcasts about it. Definitely check those out. But EPA has really good cardiovascular effects. And one of the ways Rhonda Patrick seems to describe it is like it, it kind of lubricates your your veins, your your cardiovascular system. You have to take slightly higher doses for this, usually around a gram of EPA, which is really hard to achieve with regular fish oil supplements out there because you would just have to take a really large amount of fish oil. With the Avalon, because it has five times higher bioavailability, Conceivably, you could take a much lower dose of EPA, so this is one of the reasons why Avalom EPA is very interesting for cardiovascular health. Another thing is there aren't a lot of products that are specifically high in EPA. Most products are pretty much a 50-50 split between EPA and DHA, so if you're really trying to get high EPA levels, that hasn't really been possible until something like Avalon High EPA comes out, which now we have that and we have a really good source of high bioavailability EPA. So that's interesting. Another interesting thing, and, and actually a little bit more interesting to me personally, is the mood effects of EPA. So EPA and actually DHA too, they are precursor to endocannabinoids. So we have a bunch of different compounds, endogenous compounds floating around in our body like anandamide or 2-AG that 
attach to cannabinoid receptors, and this makes up the endocannabinoid system. Well, a lot of those uh, compounds that act within the endocannabinoid system are actually derived from DHA and EPA, and specifically the endocannabinoid-type compounds that are derived from EPA seem to be quite potent, and this is likely why it's oftentimes preferred for boosting mood. So EPA is like the mood-boosting fish oil component. And taking the Avalom EPA and taking two capsules of it, actually, to try and get an even higher dose, I have actually noticed some very nice mood-boosting effects and maybe even some slight pain management effects, which would make sense with the endocannabinoid theory. Absolutely. That's really interesting and definitely a little bit of a of a star to put next to the Avalom high EPA capsules if that is something that you are interested in. So just to recap, the new products that we've released in the last month since our last podcast episode have been the Avalom high EPA capsules, the Avalom high DHA capsules, the Avalom high DHA vegan friendly algae capsules, D-L-phenylalanine, and L-carnosine. They all sound like great options to me. Uh, but I'm especially excited about that high EPA Avalom and the D-L-phenylalanine, just based on what you've shared with me. So now we are going to move into the real meat of our podcast, our topic for the month, which is very exciting and surprising and fun, which is horny goatweed. Are you ready, Emil? Absolutely. So the story behind horny goatweed is that there were goat herders who observed their goats eating this particular botanical, this particular plant out in nature, and it caused them to be especially rowdy and especially horny. And the goat herders noticed this effect, and so the name horny goatweed was created. And horny goatweed contains uh, one very special compound that we're going to be talking about a lot today, which is called Icarin. And Icarin has many different mechanisms and effects within the body, uh, but our horny goatweed extract is standardized to Icarin. And I'm going to let Emil tell you a little bit about what Icarin does and what it is and why it contributes to this horny goatweed name as it relates to libido to start, but then further into the podcast, we're also going to be talking about some of the more surprising effects of Icarin and of horny gut weed in other areas of the body. So to settle into this sexy topic we have for today, I'm curious, Emil, if you can share a little bit more about kind of the history and the traditional uses of horny goat weed, basically what kind of reputation it has, because I think for a lot of people, they may have heard the name horny goat weed uh, in passing or be familiar with it for its beneficial effects, but might not be as familiar with where this whole reputation actually comes from. Yeah, so horny goat weed, and we can actually refer it to by its uh, botanical name, so Epimedium. Uh, herba, Epimedium herba, or Epimedium species, because there's a few different ones. There's not just one horny goatweed plant, there's a few different species of horny goatweed. The one we have is Epimedium brevicornum. So this is the species we use, and there's some good reasoning behind this too, and, and it seems to be one of the more traditionally used species too. 
uh, and it seems to be quite high in different flavonoids and in icarin. So this is the species we are using. We actually beta tested a few different ones. Um, I think we tried uh, Epimedium grandiflorum and Epimedium sagittatum, and we all like the Brevicornum the best. So when I was doing a little bit of research, I found that the Brevicornum was specifically um, more leafy than other species of Epimedium. And that makes sense in terms of our extract because we're using the leaf in our extract. Yeah, and that, that could definitely be one of the reasons because there's a little bit more biomass, so it makes more sense to, to use Epimedium brevicornum. But there are also distinct differences in the biochemical composition. And actually, let me pull something up on my computer real quick. I found a study recently looking at different processing methods for Epimedium species. And looking at these different processing, and they do some crazy stuff, by the way. One of the traditional uses of Epimedium or preparation methods, it's by frying it in lamb oil. Kind of interesting. But in this study, they listed a lot of the compounds in the raw herb, and they listed a bunch of different species. So I went through and highlighted what Epimedium brevicornum specifically is high. So I can read that off. So you have a lot of different uh, flavonoids besides, we'll definitely talk about icarin because that's one of the main things. But if we look at the, the total flavones, which we'll be talking about specifically for the 10% icarin extract in a little bit, we see that specifically Epimedium brevicornum is high in Bauucide 2, Bauucide 1, Magnofluorin, which is actually an alkaloid, quite interesting. Neochlorogenic acid, this might sound familiar, it's a compound that's also found in coffee. And Icaricide 1. So this is specifically what uh, Epimedium brevicornum seems to be high in when compared to other species. It's also very high in Icarin, but there are some other species that are a little bit higher in Icarin. So I also think one of the reasons we liked Epimedium brevicornum, especially in a 10% Icarin formulation, is because of these other interesting flavones and flavonoids. But moving on from that, if we look at the historical use of Epimedium species, or horny goatweed, we can see it all the way back to Shenong's Materia Medica. So Shenong was referred to as the Define Farmer, and this was at least 2,000 years ago in China, and he is kind of the, the founding father of traditional Chinese medicine, and, and it's one of the earliest books on real traditional Chinese medicine. And I was actually watching an interesting conference uh, before recording this podcast, actually, about traditional Chinese medicine and its uses, and the presenter was actually saying that Shenong bioassayed all of these herbs on himself. So he took it and he explained what was happening and the presenter kind of likened him to uh, a, a Sasha Shogun type person who, for anyone in the know, you'll know who Sasha Shogun is. Another famous influential bioassaying pioneer. Absolutely. But Shenong was doing this thousands of years ago. He was bioass he was going out, trying these plans trying them out on himself, and then wrote this book. And in this book, it, it's been translated now into English, so I'll read the entry for Epimedium. So in Shenong's Materia Medica, uh, Epimedium, or horny goatweed, is actually referred to as Ying Yang Ho, and the description for it, the translated description, of course, is acrid and cold. It mainly treats impotence, 
expiry and damage and pain in the penis. It disinhibits urination, boosts the qi or chi, I'm, I'm not actually not sure how you pronounce that, and physical force and strengthens the will. Its other name is guanxian, staunch front. It grows in mountains and valleys. And then a little bit of extra information uh, in this book, in this translation, states Epimedium boosts the essence of qi, fortifies the sinews and bones, and disinhibits urination. It treats paraplegia and insensitivity of the skin. It is an important medicinal for impotence due to expiry of yang in the males and infertility due to expiry of yin in females. The phrase expiry and damage means expiry of the network vessels, which are the passageways for yin, essence, and yang, qi. If these expire or are damaged, impotence and infertility will arise. Powerful stuff. And it makes sense that they're talking about basically the strength of the will, which is something that I personally have noticed. I've been taking our horny goat weed extract, and I would say it does have very noticeable and prominent mood-boosting effects. But the really, really important aspect of what you just read is that it has influential benefits for men and women related to fertility and related to sexual pleasure and sex in general. Yeah, and this is really interesting because going back to, we've been talking about testosterone and and estrogen in some of our previous episodes. The interesting thing there is testosterone may increase fertility a little bit in males, but is it really doing that in females? And is estrogen maybe more of a driver for fertility? So what's going on there? And these entries into Materia Medica really elucidate some of the interesting things going on with horny goat weed because it's actually quite estrogenic but before we all have a collective knee-jerk reaction this estrogenic activity is positive and we'll be talking quite a bit about estrogenic activity here too another really interesting thing in this materia medica entry is that a lot of it focuses on uh, impotence and the penis and we know now that icarin the compound Erica was talking about earlier, which is one of the main compounds in horny goat weed, acts as a PDE5 inhibitor. And when you inhibit this enzyme, PDE5, you get some downstream messengers, CGMP, and this compound can, or this messenger, can uh, stimulate blood flow to corpus corpus curvosum tissue, I think, which is the penile tissue. So... PDE5 inhibition is a very uh, popular strategy for increasing erectile efficiency, I guess. And strength and vitality. And not only is this corpus cavernosum uh, a part of the tissue in the penis, it's also the same kind of tissue that makes up uh, the orgasmic platform, to quote you from a previous podcast episode, Uh, of the clitoris. So this same tissue is present in both the penis and the clitoris. Makes sense why they're referring to the yin and the yang in this entry that you read earlier. Yeah, and and that's a really important uh, point that you you just touched on, is that this erectogenic effect is definitely present in males, but we don't really think of women as, as having erections, but 
this is definitely happening. And this orgasmic platform that Erica is mentioning, it depends on this tissue filling up with blood and becoming more sensitive through that. Uh, and one thing that Icarin does is that it promotes blood flow to smooth muscles. And though I haven't read this specifically, my hunch is that the same benefits that apply to the smooth muscle in the penis are happening to the smooth muscles of the clitoris and the vagina as well. Yes, absolutely. So for both men and women, horny goatweed is a good strategy for this uh, pre-sexual activity, kind of getting the blood flowing and, and having everything function a little bit better and having everything be more pleasant. And you see this in Shenang's Materia Medica. This is clearly one of the big uses for it. So another interesting thing that I've discovered and we have discussed in preparing for the podcast is not only is more blood flow beneficial for an erection or for engorgement, but more blood flow also means more moisture. And this is important for sex in general and just the lubrication of what's actually going on. But it's also important when thinking about the uses of horny goat weed within aging, because as we talked about in our last podcast episode, there are a lot of changes that happen in women's bodies as they age. Um, And one of those being decreases in estrogen. And one of those side effects of decreases in estrogen is dryness and discomfort, um, vaginal dryness and discomfort. And horny goat weed addresses this specifically with more blood flow and moisturization and just lubrication in general. Well, and actually, yes, perhaps if you have more blood flow, there is definitely uh, water content in the blood so that could deliver more moisture. But more importantly, and I, I don't necessarily think the blood flow effects are responsible for this, but the interesting thing is horny goat weed is quite estrogenic and like we said earlier, don't have a knee-jerk reaction to this just yet, but Icarin seems to actually induce aromatase. So a lot of you are probably familiar with aromatase, and you're probably looking to actually inhibit aromatase oftentimes, because aromatase is an enzyme that turns testosterone into estrogen, and and this, this is mediated by this aromatase enzyme. When you inhibit aromatase, then less testosterone is converted into estrogen, which means testosterone levels go up at the expense of estrogen. However, aromatase is really, really important for cognitive function, for blood flow. It's actually very important for spermatogenesis, for testicular health. So when we are looking at people who are taking high doses of aromatase inhibitors, we see actually a lot of issues related to libido, related to lubrication, related to sexual pleasure and things like this. So the interesting thing is Icarin induces aromatase and by doing this can actually increase the biosynthesis of estrogen and this is overall quite a good thing and especially for postmenopausal women where estrogen biosynthesis is way down. So having this estrogen biosynthesis through aromatase, more aromatase activity is, is quite beneficial here. And furthermore, Icarin itself can actually attach to the estrogen receptor alpha and estrogen receptor beta with a preference for estrogen receptor beta. An interesting thing to consider here too is that it doesn't 
activate the estrogen receptor beta uh, or estrogen beta receptor at the same intensity as estradiol or E2 itself. So it seems like icarin uh, produces about a 45% of the activity as estradiol at this receptor, but it binds quite strongly to the estrogen receptor beta or the estrogen beta receptor. And this is maybe somewhat similar to the ginsenosides, where the ginsenosides can bind to corticosterone receptors, but they don't produce the same amount of activity as cortisol, but they do bind really strongly, so they can actually displace cortisol. And So to give you a little bit of context, uh, when Emil's referring to the ginsenosides, uh, one great example that we use in this podcast a lot is uh, the effects of Panamax, which is one of our ginseng extracts, and the fact that Panamax can balance uh, cortisol and just balance the effects of cortisol because it's mimicking cortisol, um, but at lower levels and in a different fashion than the cortisol that's just in your body naturally. Yeah, so that means then if you have high amounts of cortisol, what would happen, Erica? You get really stressed. But what would happen in the context of high stress and ginsenosides? Oh, gotcha. I was thinking, well, I think your heart rate would go up and you'd get stressed and you'd be <laughs> yeah. annoyed. Um, in the context of ginsenosides, the ginsenosides would balance the cortisol, so bring cortisol down to a more, I guess, standard or baseline level, although I'm not exactly sure what the changes are specifically. Yeah, so it's not actually changing the level of cortisol. The cortisol is still there. Basically, what it's doing is grabbing a cortisol and ripping it away from the receptor and putting itself there. It's like you're standing at li in line to, to pick up some tacos or something and the person behind you throws you out of the line and goes and stands in your position and then goes and orders food and you have to go to the back of the line. That's kind of what the ginsenosides can do here with the cortisol. When so the overall effect is that you feel the the effects of high cortisol less, you feel the effects of the ginsenosides binding to cortisol receptors more. Yeah, so basically what I'm trying to get at more here is that with high amounts of cortisol, when you introduce ginsenosides, it actually has a stress-relieving property because it is displacing some of this cortisol, and in response, it's producing a lower stress response than cortisol itself. So it has a, a real stress-relieving effect here. But the interesting thing is that you actually need some cortisol activity and when cortisol levels are low then these ginsenosides can actually go and bind to the receptors and produce this very low level controlled stress response which will help with motivation and focus and energy and this is what actually underlies a lot of the effects of panax ginseng and why panax ginseng is stimulating but when we now go back to icarin Icarin might be doing a similar thing because it can bind quite strongly to the estrogen beta receptor. It produces a lower level of effect than estradiol itself. So I think when there's a high amount of estradiol, then Icarin can actually bind to these receptors and modulate the, the estrogenic effects. So actually downgrade things a little bit. When estrogen levels or estradiol levels are low, then it can actually substitute for it. And this is important because Estrogen and, and estrogen beta receptor activity and estrogen alpha receptor activity is highly important for blood flow. So icarin potentially, especially in women and especially in postmenopausal women, has a kind of a two-pronged 
blood flow effect. First and foremost through inhibiting PDE5, and secondly through increasing estrogenic activity. And this also an interesting thing in the uh, Materia Medica that was being stated is that it helps with bone health. And one of the reasons why Icarin and horny goat weed as a, as a total plant extract can actually enhance bone health is because bone health depends on adequate amounts of estrogen. When estrogen are low, when estrogens are low, your bones become a little bit more brittle, it's easier to break a bone, so you see a lot of postmenopausal women have more issues with bone breakage than older men in that, in that sense. Not entirely because testosterone also has an effect on bone health and estrogen is also present in males, so you see similar issues, but postmenopausally there's a huge decrease in uh, estrogen, so you see this. With something like Icarin being able to substitute for estrogen, you get these positive estrogenic effects without actually a lot of the negatives of estrogen itself. So we got off on a little bit of a tangent there talking about bone health, but I want to get back to the conversation about basically the libido enhancement aspect of Icarin and horny goatweed. Because now that we have a little bit more understanding of what estrogen is doing and why it's important for men and women, um, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the exact mechanisms of Icarin as it relates to sexuality. So earlier, uh, I was talking about the connection between blood flow and lubrication, which was actually incorrect. That's not the way that Icarin is well, acting. It, it's not totally incorrect. I, I do think that blood flow is important for lubrication because at the end of the day, blood is a transporter of moisture. Okay. So more blood flow probably, but the main mechanism in women specifically is likely through an estrogenic mechanism. Okay, I see. So to kind of recap and to simplify it, Icarin is increasing the the vitality and the strength of erections and blood flow through its PDE5 inhibition. But on the other side or the complementary side of this uh, beneficial lubrication effect, this is happening through estrogenic activity. Yeah, and actually I think a lot of horny goat weed's libido enhancing effects are actually because of estrogen and not because of testosterone. So one reason I think this is I recently had a conversation with one of my friends who's a powerlifter and he's been experimenting with steroids for his whole life. And he had a period where his estrogen levels crashed. And when his estrogen levels crashed, his libido went down a lot. And when I went and did a little bit of research around the web too, it's a pretty well-known fact amongst hardcore bodybuilders and powerlifters who are using uh, steroids and things like that, that low levels of estrogen are not good for sexual function. Very, very high levels of estrogen are not either. Um, but this is why Icarin is interesting because it seems to have this almost adaptogenic estrogenic-like activity. And when we look at this effect, it seems actually that a lot of the libido effects of horny goat weed are related to this effect on the estrogen beta receptor and this increase in estrogen biosynthesis. Very cool. And it's interesting to be discovering the importance of estrogen at this point after we've 
discussed testosterone and its motivation and mood benefits um, for the last few months in our podcasts, because I think in general, the understanding of what testosterone is and what it does and how boosting testosterone can help with libido is a little bit close, closely linked. Like we know that testosterone helps us build muscle and have motivation and, you know, maybe more vitality and more endurance and just better performance in the bedroom. But perhaps we attribute these benefits, these libido benefits of, uh, testosterone supplementation a little bit too heavily, and there's more of a balance at play here between testosterone and estrogen as it relates to libido, because as was described in this entry um, that Emil read earlier, there there is a balance in our bodies and in nature and in stories of traditional use between, you know, the the yin and the yang. And this, of course, is not uh, scientific material I'm discussing right now, but it's just more general material. So how does this balance between the motivation and the intensity of testosterone kind of stack up against the estrogenic side of horny goat weed? Because I'm curious to know, like, what, what does estrogen do for our mood? And what does estrogen have to do with, you know, better libido? Yeah, and those are great questions. And before we get into that too much, I do actually want to mention that Icarin acts as a testosterone mimetic. So it can actually act on some of these androgen receptors too. And there does seem to be some studies that are indicating that Icarin and horny goat weed as a whole can actually increase testosterone biosynthesis too. So it seems like there's a two-pronged thing going on here. And I think this is actually very important. So going back to your question estrogen is important for libido likely because estrogen is also quite dopaminergic and we know that dopamine is important for libido and just mood in general so it's likely that through this estrogenic mechanism we are getting more dopaminergic activity and that to a certain degree is aiding libido another interesting point is that when you active the the estrogen beta receptor is very highly uh, expressed throughout the brain it's important for brain vascularization and brain blood flow but also various aspects of mood and it seems also libido because why else would libido be low if estrogen is low but if you supplement with a little bit more estrogen then libido can go up so estrogen seems to be an important player here and a really interesting point of all of this actually is that when you activate the estrogen beta receptor it seems like insulin-like growth factor which we call IGF-1 skyrockets and this might actually underlie a lot of the positive effects of horny goat weed. Insulin-like growth factor is very important for muscle growth and if you look at um, supplementing with just IGF-1, you see more muscle growth. Um, IGF-1, you also see go down as we age. So this seems to underlie some of the, the anti-aging properties of horny godweed too. One, through this estrogenic mechanism. Two, through this insulin-like growth factor mechanism, which IGF-1 also seems to have some libido effects, so that's good. IGF-1 also seems to enhance sleep, which we'll talk about later. 
and IGF-1 also seems to enhance mood. So all the pieces are kind of fitting together. We're, we're hitting this estrogen beta receptor, we're getting higher levels of IGF-1, we're getting some more estrogen biosynthesis, and this is all happening in a nice and balanced way where we're not getting very, very high levels of estrogen, but we are getting this balanced estrogenic response in addition to some testosterone and IGF-1. So it's, a, it's a quite a complex hormonal shift that happens when you take horny goat weed. And I think this underlies some of its really unique properties. Absolutely. And it makes sense why it combines well with something like Tangat Ali or Sistanch, for example, uh, because from my understanding, just in this conversation we're having now, it is helping to balance uh, testosterone and estrogen. And because it's specifically acting on um, estrogenic activities and receptors, this would be a logical complement to something like Tangata Lee, which is really targeting testosterone. And, and it would be especially a good fit with Tangata Lee because Tangata Lee also seems to be a very mild, though. It doesn't seem to be very strong, but it seems to be an aromatase inhibitor. And it does seem like in some people who are taking higher doses of our very potent already Tangata Lee, some people are taking multiple capsules of the 10% uh, urocominone extract very very high dose some of these people seem to be experiencing effects that can likely be related to low estrogenic activity maybe some people are just more sensitive to these aromatase inhibitor effects but that would mean that horny goat weed is a very good complement to tonga Ali because it would be inducing aromatase and perhaps the net effect is that there is very little change in aromatase activity when you stack Tangadali and horny goatweed together. And that could be really beneficial, especially considering that estrogen, and this was really surprising to me when I first read this, is estrogen is quite anabolic. Um, and especially estrogen that binds to the estrogen beta receptor, and it's likely due to this IGF-1 effect, because IGF-1 is also very anabolic. So this is something I never really considered, and when I was looking around on bodybuilding forums, this the sentiment seemed to be there. Yes, estrogen is anabolic. Yes, maybe we should even be supplementing with straight-up estradiol. And, and this is something I would have never expected to read on a bodybuilding forum, because men are just so terrified of estrogen. And obsessed with testosterone as yes. well. And it does seem to me like the the fear of estrogen and the fear-mongering of phytoestrogens in food, which, you know, is a, is a legitimate concern, um, perhaps is just a reflection of generalized misogyny and misunderstanding of what estrogen is and what it does, uh, because it makes so much sense when we're discussing its actual mechanisms, especially in the context of horny goatweed. Yeah, and I, when I when I kept looking into this, I actually found something really interesting. And uh, a lot of you are probably familiar with beta ectosterone. I've never really been a real believer in beta ectosterone until I started beta testing it recently, and I started having some pretty interesting effects. And I actually went and and looked around, what is causing the 
strength effects and some of the mood effects of beta ectosterone because it's not it doesn't seem to be androgenic it doesn't have androgenic like effects for me and in the research i've done i haven't been able to discover an androgenic mechanism for beta ectosterone however i did find that beta ectosterone is a very selective and very potent activator of the estrogen beta receptor and likely a lot of the muscle growth effects from something like beta ectosterone are solely being derived through this estrogen beta receptor activity and subsequent increases in IGF-1 levels. So beta ectosterone is probably quite selectively stimulating IGF-1 levels and this is why it's a unique anabolic compound. So anabolic actually that it's been banned by WADA, I believe, the the anti-doping agency. So it's as if acknowledging the presence of testosterone and estrogen and its effects on mood and libido and muscle growth is actually the better way to optimize all of these different aspects of health rather than just focusing on one specific compound or one specific function of a hormone. And the same goes for estrogen here. If you just focus on estrogen and this IGF-1 effect, but you don't actually introduce testosterone or other androgens into the picture, you're losing out on a lot because the estrogenic activity and the androgenic activity are actually synergistic. When you have IGF-1, when you have estrogen beta receptor activity, and you have testosterone all happening together, this is when the most amount of anabolism happens. So Horny goatweed is a really interesting addition to a testosterone-based stack because it would be taking care of some of the estrogen uh, effects. It would be supplementing some of the estrogen, balancing estrogen levels, and more than likely having its own anabolic effect just because of the estrogen beta receptor activity. Maybe an effect that is even somewhat similar to beta ectosterone, which is really interesting to me and and quite a revelation. I, I really did not know this. And when I dug further, a lot of men talk about, you know, estrogen levels are high, testosterone levels are low, must mean I have infertility. And you definitely need the testosterone for fertility. But if you actually look at spermatogenesis, spermatogenesis is highly dependent on aromatase activity. And there being actually quite a lot of estrogen, and it seems like sperm itself actually contains a lot of estrogen, which is quite fascinating to me. And testicular weight and and health also depends on there being enough estrogen around. So estrogen, let's not be afraid of it in the way we have been. We definitely need to be careful with it because estrogens can have negative effects too, but in these somewhat mild phytoestrogens like icarin and some of the other flavonoids and some of the flavonoids even in soy although those are much stronger we see positive effects and and we need to look into this more because i think it really opens up a whole new door of nootropic and fitness muscle strength gain type research absolutely and also uh, research into sexual health Absolutely. So as you were talking about the uh, presence of estrogen in sperm, I started thinking, what effect does horny goat weed have on prolactin levels? And does it have an effect on prolactin levels in similar ways to Tongata Lee, for example? Hmm. Yeah, that's actually not something I looked into. Um, 
Yeah, and, and with Tonga Dali, potentially Tonga Dali is actually increasing prolactin levels, which is why we recommended in one of the previous episodes to take apigenin with it, because apigenin can be a um, inhibitor of prolactin levels. So that's a good thing there. With horny goatweed, I actually didn't really look into this too much, and I'll have to do some more research on that topic. But if we consider that estrogen beta receptor activation may have dopaminergic type effects too, then, and considering that if we have high dopaminergic activity, prolactin levels go down, because if we activate dopamine D2 receptor, then we drop prolactin levels. So, in theory, with something like horny goatweed, if it is increasing dopamine levels, which it might through its estrogenic mechanisms, then it could actually be dropping prolactin levels. But I have no clue. This I'm. This is just guesswork here. But I'll have to look into that a little bit more. Yeah, I'd be really curious to know uh, what effect it's having because the combination of horny goatweed and Tongat Ali and Apigenin uh, and Sistanch seems like a really solid uh, stack for androgenic health and sexual health in general. But and just more hormonal health, actually, if, yeah. we, if we stop focusing on the androgenic and we actually stop focusing on the estrogenic, too. And then we take into account the prolactin and the, the pregnenolone and allopregnenolone and DHAE, and we look at this complete hormonal picture. When we take a stack like that, the whole hormonal picture will change and likely will change for the positive. So hormonal optimization stacks. I like it. And I like the sound of it. And exactly, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. It does get quite complex. And it's interesting to see how these different uh, supplements and these different botanicals kind of overlap in their effects. Um, but it's especially great when actually taking these supplements to experience those effects for yourself. And just to see how much mood and blood flow and, uh, you know, cognitive benefits also help in the areas of libido and sexual health as well as just physical health and muscle building and motivation for exercise too. Yeah and with that in mind actually let's take a quick moment to discuss the two different extracts we have because we have two different horny goatweed extracts both of them standardized the icarin one of which only contains 10% icarin the other one half of it is icarin and 50%. 50%. And Let's look at the 50% first. When it comes to more of the, the exercise benefits, the libido benefits, everything we just talked about, the 50% is probably going to be a good choice. Mostly because we have a more specific selective effect here. When we make extracts, we oftentimes think we are enriching something, creating more of something, but of course we're not creating more of something. We have a set amount of this material in a plant, um, let's say we start with uh, uh, fresh leaves of horny goatweed. These leaves likely contain a very high percentage of water. Let's say maybe it's close to like 90% water or something like that. The best, the, the easiest way to make an extract then is to actually just remove the water. We remove the water and by removing the water now the, the leaf material per gram is more concentrated in bioactives. So even just drying something out, maybe we can even think of that as making an extract because we are already removing something and because we removed something, something else increased in concentration, not because we created 
more of that compound, more so because we just removed something. And basically the ratio of active compounds when compared to the total uh, plant matter that's left changes because when the water is present, the active compounds might only make up, like you said, 10% or certainly less. Way less. Uh, w- way yeah. less. It's not like 90% water, it's 10% like active. 0.01% yeah, probably yeah. in fresh leaves. So yeah. the ratio of the actives is going to be quite low in fresh leaves, but then once we remove the water through drying, the ratio increases. Uh, I would imagine significantly um, which is a good way to start that idea of comparing the ratios of the fresh original plant material with just a very simplified dried quote extract that we're discussing now yeah and then if we move on from there this dried plant matter contains a lot of cellulose and starches fibers fibers some proteins some fats some waxes that are just useless chlorophyll things that not entirely useless they they have their uses and as a food source maybe and and the waxes can be good for maybe making a candle but supplementation wise supplementation wise you don't necessarily want those things so another thing when we start to extract is we remove those things we remove the waxes we remove the fats we remove um some of the proteins but mostly we are removing just the cellulose the plant cell material stuff like that then that results in a powder that's even more concentrated in these bioactive compounds, not because we created more, but because we got rid of stuff. So per weight, it's now more concentrated. And then when we move on from there, and I always like to use coffee as an example here. So we take coffee grounds, we extract those coffee grounds with water, and then we throw away the coffee grounds. Now we have a water-based extract that contains sugars acids oils um, oils um, b vitamin like compounds like trigonelline and then caffeine uh, also some beta carbolines so we have a pretty complex full spectrum extract but we still threw away a lot in the coffee grounds but we went from having like maybe 20 grams of coffee and now we have a 275 gram beverage that's kind of my preferred coffee ratio but a lot of that is just water if i were now to boil the water off maybe think a really good extraction yields maybe like two percent total dissolved solids or something like that so then we're ending up with with a small amount of powder that's a complex mixture of sugars oils uh acids alkaloids and that's going to contain uh, all of those active compounds from the 20 grams of coffee that you initially started with coffee beans that you started with considering that our extraction efficiency is 100 percent, which of course barely (laughs) ever is because if you had 100 percent extracted coffee beans it would taste absolutely horrendous (laughs) yes yes so keeping that in mind uh even with less than 100 percent extraction rates starting with 20 grams of coffee, turning it into this uh, coffee water solution, and then drying it out, what you're left with is going to be uh, potent because it's a small amount of material, but it's containing these active compounds from those 20 grams of initial coffee beans. Yeah, so let's say we started with uh, 20 grams of coffee and we have a yield of, you know, one gram of this powder that resulted in drying out the coffee 
this is a little bit optimistic, of course, but just for the sake of simplicity, we have now actually created a 20 to 1 extract. We started with 20 grams of coffee beans, and now we have 1 gram of extract. So we significantly concentrated some of the compounds by deleting a lot of stuff. The, the coffee bean itself contains a lot of cellulose and stuff like that, which is not going to be water soluble. You're not going to be able to just extract it with a short hot water extraction, which is how you make coffee. So you're throwing all of that away and you are left with the water soluble compounds that are in coffee beans. Now, if you take this powder and you take it, you're going to have an experience that is very similar to drinking a cup of coffee because it contains all of the different compounds in coffee. So within coffee, you have beta carbolines which make caffeine more uh, active and you have trigonelline which has interesting neuroactive effects. So you have something more than just caffeine going on. Now you can also take this one gram of extract and then further purify it to remove everything but the caffeine. So now we started with coffee beans, now we had this nice full spectrum extract, and now we just have caffeine, which caffeine is nice too, but just pure caffeine by itself is actually not that interesting. It's a lot more interesting in the context, at, at least for me, in the context of coffee, because there's more stuff going on there. This same concept applies to horny goatweed. When we extract horny goatweed, we're deleting stuff, so the lower the um, standardization, in like 10%, for example. Yeah, so for example, in our 10%, we do definitely have a lot of icrin, but because we didn't purify this extract a whole lot, it contains a lot of the different compounds that are naturally present in horny goatweed. And some of those compounds I listed off earlier, like the Bauscheid 1 and some of these other um, flavones and flavonoids that can have interesting effects. And when we tried out the 10%, um, Icarin extract on ourselves. I honestly, when we first got into horny goatweed, I really didn't think it was going to be that interesting, so I had low hopes, which is always actually a good thing in beta testing. Well, not always, because you can also have a negative placebo, but at least I'm not creating this effect in my mind. So I was really surprised when the 10% Icarin extract started kicking in and had very nice mood-boosting effects. So then I thought, if I try the 50% extract, maybe I will experience these mood-boosting effects again too, and I didn't. So there's clearly something in the 10% that's being deleted in the 50% in favor of Icarin. So there's way more Icarin, five times more Icarin, but there's less of the other stuff, so it's more purified. So then when we come back from this slightly long tangent, sorry for that, if we come back to the, the bodybuilding, fitness, libido thing, go with the 50%. You're getting just Icarin, the effects are a little bit more predictable and selective and straightforward and clean and will mesh better with other extracts. If, on the other hand, you're also looking for something that has more mood-boosting effects and maybe some interesting effects on sleep and stuff like that, the 10% Icarin is actually a lot nicer in my opinion and this is the horny goat weed that i'm personally taking i'm also taking the 10 percent extract but i'm really curious to try out the 50 percent uh, based on what you just shared as well as just being curious to see if the mood effects aren't as prominent from horny goat weed uh, what kind of takes its place because when we compare the 10 percent and the 50 percent extracts i want to know with those compounds that are being, quote, deleted from the 50% extract uh, to favor and prioritize Icarin, 
what kind of effect that has overall um, just for horny goat weed by itself, but then also combined with some of my other hormone health supplements. Uh, For example, I take the 10% Tongata Lee extract because I prefer that one to the 2%, but I'm not certain that a higher amount of Icarin would actually have more benefits in the case of horny goat weed, but to be determined, I'll have to try that out at a future time. Yeah, and actually the reason you'd prefer the 10% over the 2% for the Tongata Lee is actually because there is less going on with the 10%. So you get more of this uricominone effect, which is helping to enhance testosterone levels, so it's a cleaner effect, whereas the 2% Tongata Lee, which is actually my favorite, is more... I like to call it pharmacologically complex. So when you take it, it just has a more complex effect. And I really like this. Um, So my preference is always actually going to be, in general, the more full-spectrum extracts, the less deleted extracts. But there's a a high... um, I think more likely is people like the more selective stuff. Sure. I think one reason that I prefer the 10% Tongata Lee extract over the 2% is exactly what you're saying. The 2% does feel more complex. Even though the perceptible benefits are a little bit harder to identify with the 2%, it's a lot to kind of sense and to identify. And I do find that the 10% is so clear and so straightforward in its effects that I can perceive that I enjoy taking that supplement a little bit more because I know that when I take that Tongatali 10%, I'm going to have these kinds of effects. But it's interesting that I'm taking the horny goat weed 10% and finding a lot of benefits from this kind of lower standardized extract. And it's probably because I really enjoy the mood effects of the horny goat weed 10%. So I would be curious to see um, how much of that mood benefit sticks around for the 50% or if the 50% really is a great acute uh, libido enhancing, you know, option because perhaps that can be used more on an as needed basis. And I know a lot of people have questions about cycling of supplements, especially these hormone health supplements and libido supplements. Um, I'm sure on one hand, because of the, the reality in the world of dependency and also what happens when you stop taking a supplement like that. Does your libido just totally dry up? Do you struggle to have erections or to be uh, aroused? And this is something we'll get into a little bit more with our questions from Reddit. But basically, to link back to this 10% versus 50% comparison of horny goat weed, I'm curious, does 50% have more of an acute effect perceivably and for that reason is it good to have on hand as kind of an occasional supplement Uh, because I really like taking the 10% every day but I'm not sure if that 50% would be something I would want to be taking all the time. So actually um, I would suggest you switch it around. So the 10% has a more acute effect the 50% has less of an acute effect. Mm. So if you really wanted to utilize it in that way, then actually switch out your daily to the 50%, 
you'll actually notice it less acutely. And then when you do need an acute boost, then take the 10% because the 10% has a more profound acute effect. Which brings me to another interesting point. I noticed the mood effects quite rapidly the first week or so that I'm taking horny goat weed, uh, the 10% Icarin extract, this very distinct, unique, acute effect. Uh, After about a week, maybe even two weeks, some other effects start to pop up and I start sleeping a little bit better. Could possibly be because of the IGF-1 effect, because of the estrogen beta receptor activation and more mood effects and just the longer I take the horny goat weed 10%, the better I feel. So I think that the horny goat weed 10% is the clear winner for acute effects, especially acute mood effects, whereas the 50% is perhaps more of a long-term winner for mood, for um, libido, for blood flow, and things like that. And maybe actually a good strategy is... If you are interested in horny goat we start out with the 10%. You'll notice more and then you'll have these estrogenic type effects and IGF-1 type effects build up over time. Then once your bottle of the 10% runs out, then switch to the 50% because you already have this baseline level of estrogenic activity that's helping to enhance mood and, and all of those good things. So then you can switch to the more selective, maybe less acutely active extract. That's really cool. I'm glad that you made that suggestion of switching out uh, daily horny goat weed usage to the 50% extract rather than the 10%, because I think that I make an assumption that a lot of people make, which is a higher percentage extract, like a higher standardization of Icarin will be more powerful and you know, should be treated with more caution. But it sounds like that's not necessarily the case. And just because the percentage of Icarin in the 50% extract is high does not mean that it's going to have an overall stronger or more acute effect. And that's just a misconception that I think is really widespread, but it doesn't seem to be the case here. Yeah, and in fact, if you look at the the dosage level too like you can have a 50 percent extract and if you were to take 500 milligrams of the 50 percent horny goat weed extract which is the dosage for the 10 percent horny goat weed then instead of getting 50 milligrams of icarin which you are getting with 500 milligrams of the uh, 10 percent extract if you're taking 500 milligrams of the 50 percent then you're getting 250 milligrams of icarin so to account for this, obviously the dosage is lower for the horny goat weed 50%. So, yes, if you were to take the same exact dosage of the 10% and the 50%, maybe the 50% will in fact be a little bit stronger, but 250 milligrams of Icarin seems like huge overkill to me. So if you're looking at it more, and, and this is how I conducted my beta testing too, I actually I had a 98% uh, Icarin extract too, So just pure Icarin, nothing else going on. And the way I conducted my beta testing is I determined that I wanted 50 milligrams of Icarin and I was going to get 50 milligrams of Icarin from the 10%, from the 50% and from the 98%. And that's how I did the testing. And then when you're controlling for the same level of Icarin, the effects were still different. So it's not necessarily more potent 
although it is by weight it's more potent but if you look at it and you're adjusting for the dosage it just becomes more selective rather than more potent that makes sense and i suppose it also leads us back to that concept that you read remind me the name of that document that you were reading from earlier it's actually a book and the book is called the materia medica shenong's materia medica and shenong is the 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 fine farmer so it's the the fine farmers materia medica is oftentimes what it's referred to i think in the english translations because that i mean that just sounds a whole lot more interesting than shenong's materia medica the divine farmers materia medica aha yes the materia medica it seems to emphasize the concept of balance and that feels relevant to this conversation we're having about different standardizations of extracts because another question that we get about extracts and should I go for the higher standard higher standardization or the lower standardization, um, sometimes we also get the question, what happens if I just take epimedium, just the plant leaf as a whole without an extract? And this is something that we don't discuss as much on this podcast because we're talking about extracts and supplements in that form. Um, but the whole plant does have a balance of different compounds and does have powerful effects. So, And, and if you think actually back to Materia Medica, then the extraction techniques that we now have, and we can use HPLC analysis and stuff like that to determine, okay, we made this step in our extraction process and then we got a specific amount of icarin and not a whole lot of other stuff. That really wasn't happening 2,000 years ago. I think that the extractions that were being made were quite rudimentary and oftentimes you see talk of decoctions, which are literally just boiling the um, epimedium with some water and basically making a tea. And I think oftentimes the whole herb is just consumed in, in much larger quantities of it. We're looking at you know, 500 milligrams, half a gram of, of an extract, which is already quite a bit, actually, of plant matter. But consider then that if you were to get the same amount of ichorin from just eating raw epimedium herb, you would probably have to consume 50 grams or something like that of fresh leaves. So an interesting thing to consider, though, because in these more traditional texts, we are probably seeing effects of the full picture rather than what we are doing now where we're focusing on one compound because we're seeing it in the research and we're seeing the effects it has and we want just this one specific compound. It's also interesting to think about just in terms of taking supplements every day. I like the concept of just being able, like if I were able to grow epimedium in my backyard, to just consume the fresh leaves, and I'm sure it would have even more interesting effects, maybe acute effects, than the 10% icarin extract. The problem is, I do, at the end of the day, want a set amount of icarin, and if you look at plants, you put them in a different soil, they respond differently. Maybe there's different variations in uh, daytime sun exposure because of cloud cover and uh, rain and, and all of this and all of these different factors and temperatures and human intervention and fertilization can have effects on the bioactives. 
even if you look at different growing regions, if you grow it in the north of China, maybe it contains more icarin. If you grow it in the south of China, maybe it contains less icarin. And studies like this are actually being done. So taking just whole unstandardized herb is interesting as kind of like a, a one-off thing or more if you don't necessarily mind not having this lack of standardization but for me if i'm taking supplements and for specific goals i want to be able to confidently say i am consuming an amount of icrine every day that i want but very interesting to think about and interesting to think about that a lot of traditional uses of these plants are not using extracts and we actually recently had an interesting experience with this because I was at a, a Vietnamese restaurant, my favorite thought place, and they had this pennywort drink and I always see it and I never really went for it and this time I went for it and it has a really interesting herbally taste and what is pennywort? Yeah, so I was I was interested and luckily we all have a phone with us with internet connection oftentimes, so pulled out my phone, looked up what is pennywort, and they're calling it Asiatic pennywort, and Asiatic pennywort is Centella asiatica, which some of us might know as goat cola. From this pennywort drink, I didn't really experience a whole lot of effects at the restaurant, but I figured it's probably, for the sake of tasting nice, it's probably quite diluted, because it seemed to have quite a strong taste. Luckily, next door, there's a Vietnamese supermarket, so I went in there looking for this goatu cola because I figured that's where the restaurant is getting it from. Well this turned out to be a little bit more difficult than I had expected because none of the fresh herbs had names on them. Uh, luckily I knew kind of what goatu cola looked like so I just went around looking at the different bags and finally I found a big bag of goatu cola, took it home and decided to look up some traditional recipes for this pennyware drink to make it a little bit stronger. So I went with a recipe where you're using a third of a kilo of um, this goatu cola, so 333 grams, and then you're blending it with one liter of water, and then you're mixing this blended and strained. I missed a, a step, which you're supposed to filter it through a fine, like a, a coffee filter, but I just put it through a fine mesh filter and I said, whatever, let's go with this, it should be fine. Now get some more of the plant material in there, which might increase the effects. So then you take this and you mix it with one liter of sugar water. So you have two liters of this beverage from a third of a kilo of um, goatu cola. The beverage tastes really good, way stronger than in the restaurant. Really like, almost like drinking a, a vegetable smoothie. Like it, it's quite thick and I gave some to Erica and we both drank some yesterday while we were planning this podcast a little bit. And we had really pronounced effects. Extraordinarily pronounced effects. So similar to our goatu cola extract, but our goatu cola extract, I find, has a much nicer, more balanced mood boosting effect, actually. Whereas in this goatu cola beverage, it's almost dating, like very, very potent. Absolutely. I felt uh, pretty sleepy and definitely like just super super chilled out overall but also very physically relaxed um maybe a little bit of muscle relaxation effects from this and overall drinking a glass of this of this drink was extremely powerful like really really acute 
noticeable from the first gulp that I took, actually, and I drank it pretty quickly because I do like the flavor, but sometimes super green drinks can, can be a little bit scary, so I thought, yeah, I'll just take it, drink it a little bit faster than I would with, you know, a latte or something, and the effects kicked in very fast and were very, very noticeable for, I would say, at least four, but more like six hours. And this this drink that Emil made, you know, it wasn't boiled, it wasn't like at a high temperature extract, it was literally just blended with water and with sugar. Um, so it's not what you would think of as a typical extract, but more of, of a solution of this pennywort. And boy, that was intense. Yeah, and you know, in this drink, we probably consumed about like 50 grams worth of fresh pennywort, which is, I think, actually quite a high dose, maybe a little bit higher than than we should be consuming, because it was really powerful. Not entirely pleasant either for me, like it, it was just, just made me tired. This is something we hear from Gotacola users, but I've used our Gotacola and experienced more of a pleasant, more balanced effect. So I think maybe in the Gotacola there's some sort of volatile terpene that's being lost during the extraction process that's contained in the fresh herbs. So you see this a lot. Fresh herbs, fresh ginger, things like that oftentimes contain terpenes and terpenes oftentimes have biological effects and oftentimes are a little bit GABAergic too. So I think because we didn't use any heat, I really blended it at the highest speed on a Vitamix for two minutes. So that should have really broken up the cell walls quite a bit. And I'm not detecting any big pieces of um, the leaf in the beverage, even though I didn't strain it all too well. So I think I made the almost micronized fresh Gotacola powder suspended in this drink. Very interesting, but just wanted to mention it because these raw herbs can have effects, but the effects can be unpredictable, which is not always nice. And not always pleasant as well. And I think that's one aspect of uh, supplementation and extracts that's really important to realize. Um, These extracts are coming from whole plants, uh, you know, certain plant parts, and we're taking out important compounds with solvents, sometimes water, sometimes ethanol, depending on what we're actually trying to get out of the plant itself. And then the standardization means that, you know, every capsule or every dose that you take uh, should have a relative or not relative, I mean relative to the dose. It's going to have the exact same amount of the active compounds. And that means that you can control for the effects of these active compounds, especially if you're taking the supplement every day. Um, You can't necessarily control for these active compounds when you're creating a smoothie or when you're eating just the plant by itself. And that's the reason why extracts are really interesting to compare at different standardizations, but it's also really interesting to compare the actual plant with an extract to see what the differences are for yourself. And we don't use, uh, you know, horny goat weed as a food source um, personally, um, but there are, I'm sure, places and people who do, and historically this was probably used as a food source as well. But it's a similar idea where 
we might not be using this as a food source, but we can still glean some of the benefits through different standardizations and extracts. Um, but if you're curious about experiencing the plant for yourself, there's probably places that supply these kinds of plants um, out in the world. Although the results are unpredictable, these plants are not being lab tested for their active compounds and standardized. Uh, they're being grown and they're demonstrating the differences and the changes that plants have when they're in different environments, as Emil said. So it's a fantastic and a really fascinating experiment to experience the, the plant by itself, especially when you're comparing it with a standardized, tested, pure extract. Absolutely. And it's important to remember that when you look at traditional use, they're not using extracts. Well, they're using some rudimentary extract, but it's more of the whole plant. So it's it's interesting that we've over the years and, and you know, Epimedium horny goatweed has been used for at least two thousand years. We've at least been aware of it for two thousand years. It's been used a long time. We know Chinese farmers know how to grow it well, how to process it well, because that's another interesting thing. If you look at horny goatweed, there's a lot of traditional type of processing that goes on. Frying the leaves in lamb oil, for example. I'm not exactly sure what that does, but it might change the composition somehow. And and you see this within traditional Chinese medicine a lot. Some things are, I think, like Heishe Wu, which is uh, faux tea, and I, I forget the Polygonum multiflorum, I think, is is the botanical. Contains some pretty toxic stuff, but apparently if you boil it together with, like, black beans, it gets rid of a lot of this toxicity. So there is also some pretty complex processing that's going on to make these herbs work the way they do, and they don't always just work in their raw form. Um, I mean, an interesting example is hemp or cannabis, for example. A lot of the cannabinoids present in there are in their acidic form and if you just take them orally not a whole lot will happen but if you process them with a bit of heat then they will be orally bioavailable and you can have oral cbd effects and things like that similar here maybe there might be some things that that need to be changed by heat or some other chemical process to become bioavailable and active we're not really sure but anyways interesting to try out lower standardizations to get a feel for more what does the plant as a whole do and then maybe if you even have the chance to try out a completely unstandardized fresh form of something someday it's interesting it was definitely a good learning experience for me with the goat cola i'll definitely be making this drink again in the more dilute version because i like the taste of it but as a supplement i'll be using our goat cola powder but it's an interesting experiment to run if you have the ability. Absolutely. And it also identifies and kind of highlights um, some aspects of supplementation that we don't always discuss or think about, which is modern issues like what gets absorbed into the plant as it's growing. And, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, um, we can think about heavy metals that might be absorbing into the plant as it's growing or other kinds of compounds that we don't want in our bodies but and this is something that if you look back to Shenong's era when he was writing this book and when traditional Chinese medicine was really developing you didn't really have this issue exactly. because there 
And there's a great uh, YouTube video by Veritasium, one of my favorite science-y uh, YouTubers. He recently did a video about a person, I forget his name now, he decided to put ethyl, triethyl lead inside of um, fuel to prevent engine knocking. And when he did this, you can see lead levels skyrocket. So something that we ne weren't necessarily having an issue with 2000 years ago, now raw herbs, especially if they can suck heavy metals out of the, the soil, which a lot of plants are actually quite good at, so they're good at remediating the soil, but if you happen to consume these plants, then you might be consuming high levels of lead and other heavy metals that our world has been polluted with over time. Through just industrialization in general. Yes, so that's definitely something, and we test for this, we test for heavy metals. Yes, so this is an important aspect of supplementation uh, when taking extracts rather than consuming the whole plant. Well, and also the whole plant, because the whole plant yeah. will be contaminated too, and mm -hmm. you have to consume a certain amount of it. So you are not at all uh, safer consuming the whole plant. If no, you're anything, not protected. If anything, actually, you might be less, or you might be consuming more heavy metals because you're simply consuming more of this material. And Maybe in extraction, instead of concentrating some of these heavy metals, you're actually reducing the concentration. So that would actually mean that consuming just the raw herb, you might actually be consuming more heavy metals than in an extract. But specifically, in an extract that's tested for heavy metals and that follows Prop 65, the most stringent heavy metal regulations on the planet, which is what all of our extracts follow, then you can be very assured that you are not being contaminated with heavy metals. And in this world, after, cent not centuries, but a few decades worth of pollution, this is something we need to be more careful of. And we do actually see uh, botanical extracts fail somewhat regularly. We reject this, it goes back to China, but it probably doesn't get destroyed and it ends up on the market somewhere else with a seller that's not doing the testing. So heavy metal testing is very important as is testing for the bioactive. So you have a standardized extract that works the same every single day you take it. A standardized extract that is consistent and that is safe is something really, really important. And that's something that Nootropics Depot um, cares the most about and it's it's a really great way to kind of end this discussion we're having about comparing whole plants to different extracts and the benefits and the the interesting experiences from all of the above but at the end of the day safety and effectiveness is of the utmost importance especially when we're talking about improving our health in general and you know these really essential aspects of life libido and mood and strength and just overall vitality and health. And this leads us in a perfect next topic, which is just longevity and brain health, which longevity is definitely impacted by heavy metals and stuff like that. So this is a nice segue into that. How do we actually protect ourselves from environmental stressors? Um, how do we ensure longer life? And more importantly, how do we ensure that the older we get, our brains keep working the same way. Because known to, I'm sure, all of us, the older we get, the more susceptible we are to cognitive deficits. 
various different reasons that we can't necessarily get into here. But horny goatweed has some really interesting anti-aging effects, which actually is already being talked about in Shenong's Materia Medica. There's mention of anti-aging, rejuvenation type effects. And if we look at kind of the, the youth bringing rejuvenation type effects, Icarin has a really interesting effect. So it seems like Icarin can increase certain species of biotics or uh, bacteria in your gut that you see in younger individuals. So the older we get, the diversity of our uh, gut microflora goes down and certain uh, bacteria are lost, which those bacteria seem to have very important effects for aging and cognitive health and things like that. There's a lot of bacteria that create short-chain fatty acids, which is often in research referred to as SCFA. And a lot of these short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria seem to have life-prolonging effects and also seem to have um, positive effects on cognitive health. And Icarin appears to increase specifically these bacteria that produce these short-chain fatty acids that are lost as we age. So it has a youthfulness-promoting effects in the gut, and because the gut is an important mediator of overall health and life, it seems that Icarin has a youth-promoting effect through the gut. And even more interesting is that this effect is also seen if you take in old mice, if you take young mice and you collect some fecal matter from those young mice, and then you give a fecal matter transplant to the older mice, then the gut composition of these older mice is very representative of the young mice, and they seem to have less age-related issues. I'm really glad that you brought up this uh, example with mice, because the very first thing I was thinking about when you mentioned the differences in bacteria between young people and older people was baby poop. I know it's kind of strange to think about, but honestly, the smell, the characteristic smell of baby poop is very different than adult poop. Yeah, and actually the bacterial content of baby poop or infant uh, fecal matter is... Sure, to be uh, more let's, scientific. Let's be a little bit more, yeah. Um, infant fecal matter has a much higher concentration of bacteria, and this is why it's... It, I, this is very questionable, by the way, but there seem to be some parents who are literally taking their infant's fecal matter blending it up and doing fecal matter transplants in their own home. Not not the best thing to be doing, I think. Uh, yeah, we don't recommend this. But the interesting thing is, if you do look at some of the bacterial content of these people, they claim that they're having good probiotic type effects from a fecal matter transplant like this. And actually, in the medical world, fecal matter transplants are actually used. They're used frequently using donor fecal matter that is being studied in a lab and you can see okay this has the right amount of bacteria and then you just use that as a fecal matter transplant and that can really help enhance the gut microflora so if you take a young mice's fecal matter and you transplant it into an older mice then the older mice starts to show characteristics of younger mice again um, younger gut microbiota which is then having anti-aging type effects. 
more interesting even in this study, they took old mice, they gave them Icarin for a few weeks, I think. Then they took a fecal matter transplant of this old mouse who had been receiving Icarin and transplanted it into an old mouse who had not been receiving Icarin. And the change in gut microbiota uh, composition was similar to a fecal matter transplant from a young mice. So the conclusion here is that Icarin seems to produce a more youthful profile of gut microbiota composition and that this can have a very unique anti-aging effect. That is super unique and exciting, especially when I'm thinking about the popularity of probiotics and the conversations that people are having nowadays about gut health and gut bacteria. But I never considered that gut health would have an anti-aging quality to it or, or effect overall. So it's amazing to realize that your diet and eating probiotics can, you know, boost your health and in your gut health in general, but so can supplements like horny goatweed. Yeah, and actually another one that does something similar is cystange. Cystange more so for mood because something that's not often talked about, but there's a an axis, the gut brain axis. So the gut and the brain really communicate and a lot of the neurotransmitters that are present in our brain actually are coming from our gut because we are consuming the precursors in our diet, the bacteria, some of a lot of the lactobacillus or lactic acid bacteria, lab bacteria, they have good proteolytic activity so they can break down the proteins we eat and because proteins are made up of amino acids, amino acids like L-tyrosine and L-phenylalanine and uh, L-tryptophan, which are all important neurotransmitter precursors, it means that we need these bacteria to break down these proteins and to um, provide the precursors for neurotransmitter synthesis. And actually there are cells within our gut that can actually synthesize neurotransmitters and then shuttle them to the brain too. So there's definitely some really interesting effects between the gut, the brain, mood, cognition, anti-aging, things like that. And something that is frankly underexplored and needs to be explored more because clearly this is a very important part of our health and not just probiotics help enhance this. There's bioactive compounds that we consume potentially on a daily basis that help restructure our um, gut microbiota composition. This comes as somewhat of a pleasant surprise for me uh, because I've been taking our horny goat weed 10% extract for at least a month now, if not two months. Um, but I had no idea that it was that it was improving my gut health. So and nice me little neither, surprise. actually, because this study is from 2022, and I, I believe it came out in April. So it's a very new study. It's something not a whole lot of people know about yet. So you're maybe the first to hear it here on this podcast. Really fresh research. So now we're going to change gears just a little bit, still talking about uh, horny goat weed, but more so as it affects neuroprotection and our brains and our cognitive function in general, because we've discussed libido at length, we've discussed uh, the gut health and the benefits for your gut that horny goat weed has, but now it's time to really dive in and talk about what horny goat weed is doing for us as we age, as it relates to cognitive health in general. And this is also why we're discussing this a little bit later in the podcast, because all of the effects we talked about so far 
all relate to cognitive health too. So if we think of those short chain fatty acids that gut microbiota are uh, producing, those have positive effects in the brain too. If we think about some of the estrogenic activity and the fact that this estrogenic activity is enhancing cerebral blood flow, then that would have neuroprotective properties. And you see this too with ischemia reperfusion type studies with icarin. It seems to be very protective. So it, it appears that icarin is very protective for the cerebral vasculature of the brain, which makes a lot of sense because a lot of this is actually based on estrogenic activity too. So enhancing this estrogenic activity is likely what is producing a lot of these neuroprotective effects too. In addition to this, IGF-1 can be neuroprotective, so this is likely another area um, where Icarin and, and some of the other flavones in horny goatweed are having positive effects and neuroprotective effects. You also see um, that Icarin can help metabolize amyloid beta uh, plaques uh, and prevent it from uh, developing and actually uh, meshing together and creating these plaques. So, so this is a really good neuroprotective strategy. And Icarin itself has uh, antioxidant effects. It has inflammation regulating effects, specifically neuroinflammation regulating effects. So it has a lot of different effects that are neuroprotective. And this directly plays into the whole anti-aging thing too, because a very important thing that we start to lose as we age is brain function because our brains are very metabolically active and take a lot of uh, energy away from other processes in our body. And over time, this just starts to slow down a little bit. Neurological function slows down. So a big aspect of anti-aging is keeping the brain youthful too. And whether that's through a gut microbiota mechanism, direct uh, inflammation, oxidation regulating effects, um, amyloid beta protein metabolism type effects, um, or even the, the estrogenic effects, the IGF-1 effects, everything is coming together. And the, the full picture with something like Icarin and horny goatweed is that in general, it has a very comprehensive protective effect of the brain. So if we're having this neuroprotective effect from horny goatweed, what kinds of results or benefits would we be getting long-term if we're taking this supplement or for someone who starts taking this supplement who might be a little bit older? What kinds of things might we, might we notice? Well, cognition starts to decline. Um, as early, actually, strangely enough, I, I was told this by a professor in one of my neuroscience classes, at about the age of 30, things things plateau and then at about 30 things start to go down slowly so you're not seeing a whole lot of cognitive deficits at the age of 30 but 30 years from then you might start seeing some cognitive deficits because this aging has now been going on for 30 years so one thing that you might notice especially if you are just consistently taking horny goat weed like for myself 30, 40 years from now, if I take horny goatweed for 30, 40 years, which honestly I might because I really like the effects of it, then 30, 40 years from now, my cognitive status might be more similar to what it is now, and I might have less degradation there, which is something I am personally very interested in. I'm not really interested in living longer per se. I don't want to be 
like I know Dave Asprey has said he wants to be 200 years old or something like that, that seems terrible to me, to be honest. Because at that point, maybe I'm not mobile anymore, or maybe my brain doesn't work the same way. Like, there are limits to what we can achieve. So what's important to me is that as I age, I can keep my cognitive function, I can keep my mood, I can keep bone health intact and things like that. So this is, I think, a really important aspect of something like horny goatweed, and not necessarily something you can detect right away. You might have to wait 30, 40 years for this effect. The interesting thing is, though, the neuroprotective effects extend beyond that. So let's say I'm out riding my bike and I get hit by a car and I I have some sort of brain injury, then having neuroprotective things in my system already could help with the rehabilitation process, could help prevent some of this damage. So I like to see it more as like a seatbelt. Having these neuroprotective compounds in you at all times is like wearing a seatbelt. So when you get into some sort of accident, then maybe there's some more protection there. Definitely don't take something like horny goat weed and then go bash your head against the wall. But <laughs> in case you hit your head or something like that, and I, I have always been uh, into extreme sports and stuff like that, so I've hit my head multiple times, and I wish that I had some more neuroprotective stuff around at that time. But just with active lifestyles and maybe if you're interested in extreme sports, having some neuroprotective compounds around is probably a good idea. Absolutely. And on the flip side, for anyone who's not uh, super into thrill-seeking sports or, or extreme sports, the the reality of mental health as we age um, is that we're losing certain endogenous compounds, like the, the endogenous compounds that help us have a great mood and help us remember things and feel motivated, um, these just decline as we age in general. And so as a way to preserve these aspects of our cognition, having something that can protect those and preserve those over the long term, perhaps even over the rest of our lifetimes, is something that feels very important and urgent to me, uh, even though I'm not as concerned about, you know, acute damages to my brain. I'm not as much of an extreme sports person, but I am someone who would like to live a long and healthy and, you know, cognitively healthy life because this is something that's super important to me with my hobbies and just with my everyday, the ability to learn and to absorb new information and to remember what I've learned and to create new ideas. And basically as a, as a creative engine, I want to retain as much of, of that engine capacity as much as I possibly can as I age. And we're already doing this all day long through food. Food contains a lot of similar type of flavonoids that are neuroprotective. And this goes back actually, this talk I mentioned earlier about traditional Chinese medicine in the conference I was watching, the the same speaker was saying that within traditional Chinese medicine, food and these botanical supplements can't really be separated from each other too. They seem to be very intertwined as well. So 
if we think about that too, a lot of the foods we eat, like let's say we're eating cabbage, we are getting these glucosinolate type sulforaphane compounds. If you're eating red cabbage, you're getting some anthocyanins in there. That can have anti-aging type effects. If we're drinking wine, that has resveratrol in it and some other things that might have anti-aging effects. So if we're eating a salad of horny goat weed, if we're eating a salad of horny goat weed, or we're drinking this, this go-to-cola beverage. So within our diet, in good diets, if we're just eating, you know, potato chips all day and, and a lot of processed foods. This we, doesn't really apply. Yeah, we're probably missing out on a lot of these flavonoids, anthocyanins, um, antioxidants and things like that that exist within food that are neuroprotective that help us live longer, healthier lives. So we are already doing that. But then on top of that, you can take something like horny goat weed and and further promote these effects. So we know that by protecting our brains and our cognitive function that we can enjoy life for longer. And we also know that when we boost libido and have healthier, more satisfying sex lives, that that can make life more enjoyable and pleasurable. Uh, But another really, really important aspect of longevity is replenishing everything that our body is doing and creating and and working on on a daily basis through sleep. And this is our kind of last major category and topic that we're going to discuss um, as it relates to horny goat weed. And from my personal experience with the horny goat weed 10% extract, I would say that I do feel that I want to sleep a little bit more than... I used to, maybe a few months back. Not as in I'm more sleepy throughout the day, but I have the desire to sleep longer and to prioritize my sleep. And I noticed the same too, because to be honest, I I don't really like to sleep because then I'm thinking like, oh man, what's all this stuff, what all the research I'm missing out on. So for me, that's actually been a really positive effect because I am more motivated to sleep which is something that even sleep support like I can take sleep support and it makes me sleepy and I want to go to sleep but it doesn't necessarily motivate me to sleep and horny goat weed seems to actually do this after a few weeks yeah it's a really interesting effect and not something that I've experienced with any other uh, supplement that we carry and it's motivating It's motivating me to sleep, and I think part of this too is that I feel more satisfied by the sleep that I'm getting. And so, because my sleep is very satisfactory, I want more of it. And I think that there is a general benefit from horny goat weed as it relates to like sleep behavior, perhaps, like that motivation to sleep and to prioritize healthy sleep and good sleep hygiene. And it's also definitely having an effect on the quality of sleep that I'm getting because I do feel that I'm sleeping deeper. I'm not exactly sure how this works, but I'm very curious, Emil, about your research into some of the mechanisms that might be contributing to this particular sleep benefit. Yeah, so I was really curious about this too because it's an effect that I haven't necessarily experienced before. And it's something that people were asking about on Reddit but was not really in our kind of realm of of awareness prior to researching horny gut weed for this podcast. Mm -hmm. So one of the first leads actually came from a a user on Reddit. We actually get a lot of really valuable research centers by Redditors, so please keep that up. And one of these posts was talking about 
PDE5 inhibitors in general, and remember Icarin is a PDE5 inhibitor, so PDE5 inhibitors in general seem to enhance sleep quality because they seem to enhance circadian rhythms. So this is a really interesting thing, and it makes sense that it takes a little while then maybe for these uh, sleep effects to kick in, because it might be enhancing our circadian rhythm in a similar way, for example, that nobilitin can enhance circadian rhythms. And you don't necessarily have to take it at night. In fact, taking nobilitin at night might keep you up because it's also stimulating. But if you just regularly take nobilitin or you regularly take a PDE5 inhibitor like Icarin, then your circadian rhythms might just in general be better. And circadian rhythms are important for sleep. So I think this creates some of the basis for the horny goat weed sleep effects, which would make sense that I'm a little bit more motivated to go to sleep because perhaps my circadian rhythms were a little bit off too. So now that my circadian rhythms are a little bit better, I'm getting more of those natural cues that I need to sleep, that I want to sleep, and that's where this motivation is coming from. But then I also notice that I'm sleeping a little bit deeper, like Erica mentioned too. So where is this coming from? And I, I chased down quite a few leads and all of them were somewhat unsuccessful but then I looked into IGF-1 and its effects on sleep and similar to uh, human growth hormone which we talked about uh, in our last episode a little bit horny or uh, growth hormone has sleep promoting effects too and I have definitely noticed this from cystanch but after adding horny goatweed this Uh, sleep-promoting effect seems to go up a little bit more, and it seems that growth hormone and IGF-1 are both necessary for good sleep, and growth hormone and IGF-1 both decline as we age. So the whole sleep thing also really fits into the whole anti-aging discussion too, because as we age, we lose growth hormone, IGF-1, we even lose melatonin levels, and you generally see that the older individuals get the less they sleep. They sleep shorter hours. If you look at an infant, they're sleeping all the time. The older we get, we start to sleep less and less and less. And then when we get to really advanced ages, that's where we see very low levels of sleep. And it's likely because we're losing a lot of these modulators of sleep. IGF-1 being one of these modulators and growth hormone being one of these other modulators. So it makes sense that I was experiencing better sleep from taking cystanch, but then when I added horny goatweed on top of the cystanch, the sleep quality became even better because it seems that the ratio between growth hormone and IGF-1 and both of them acting together on sleep is really important. So it seems like horny goatweed has a very interesting, fairly comprehensive sleep promoting effect. First through this PDE5 inhibition pathway where it's enhancing circadian rhythms and then secondly through this pathway with IGF-1, and then when I'm thinking about the 10% Icarin, if I were to take it right before bed, it might actually help enhance sleep because it does feel a little bit GABAergic, so I think it would make sleep induction a little bit easier. However, I take my horny goat weed first thing in the morning, so I'm definitely not having these GABAergic effects later at night when I go to bed, so it's more of a, I think it's related to the PDE5 inhibition effect and IGF-1. Very, very interesting. And another anecdote to share just in support of these sleep benefits that we're discussing is that I am a person who loves to take naps. And during busy times of my life, I definitely don't have time for a nap. 
but it's hot summertime here in the desert, and so sometimes the nicest thing to do on a free afternoon or evening is just to take a little cat nap. And historically, when I wake up from a nap, I feel very cranky and confused and out of it. So even though the nap might be satisfying because I was sleepy or maybe a little bit sleep deprived, it's not very nice to wake up from and come out of a nap. But something I've been noticing recently, as I've been taking a few more naps than I was the past few months, is that my naps are much more satisfying and I'm not having those same issues with mood and crankiness and difficulty waking up from a nap. So if there are any of you out there who are frequent nap takers, um, consider that this could also be beneficial for your naps as well, because I feel like the naps I'm taking are way more fulfilling and satisfying for sleep um, in general. And it's easier for me to wake up from a nap feeling refreshed rather than discombobulated and worse than I felt prior. That's a very interesting effect. And maybe that's actually related to this IGF-1 effect where maybe sleep is a little bit more restoring. So even with a nap, you get this nice restoration effect that's a little bit more efficient than normally. Interesting. Yeah, it is super interesting. And I change the supplement that I take on a daily basis somewhat frequently because I'm trying new supplements, sometimes I'm beta testing things, but my my general daily stack has stayed pretty much the same for the past two months, I would say. And one thing that I find really fascinating is that even though my stack has stayed the same, uh, over time, especially the past two months, I've been getting a little bit more rest and I've been eating a little bit better, so my lifestyle is a little bit healthier and I find that my sleep in particular is something that keeps getting better, even though I'm not making changes to dosages of my daily supplements. And so perhaps with living a little bit healthier and prioritizing sleep and prioritizing a healthy diet, I'm also able to experience the benefits of the supplements that I'm taking. And I think I'm experiencing some more of those longer term benefits from horny goat weed. Definitely for sleep, certainly for mood, uh, for libido as well, and just overall, I really feel that horny goat weed is a very, very important standby in my daily stack, and as soon as I started taking it, I was like, I want to stick with this for a long time, and I'm pretty committed to horny goat weed at this point. And it's the exact same for me, and I think even if you go back into the Materia Medica, the Shenong um, uh, text, this sentiment is there too that horny goat weed is like almost like a tonic it it just makes everything a little bit better and anti-aging good for sexual health good for bone health sleep and and honestly horny goat weed is definitely something i'm going to be taking for the foreseeable future also something we gloss over a little bit so i'll just mention it right here at the end Inhibiting PDE5 and increasing blood flow like this is a very good strategy for enhancing overall cardiovascular function. And this is something that's oftentimes employed actually for 
recuperating cardiovascular function PDE5 inhibitors are used, and, and this is especially something that's important for postmenopausal women because postmenopausal women oftentimes have issues with blood flow and cardiovascular function due to low levels of estrogen. So getting this extra estrogen from horny goat weed, the PDE5 inhibitor effects, very good for overall cardiovascular function, and that's actually one of the reasons why I really want to take horny goat weed for the foreseeable future too. Definitely. And I think it's important that we discuss the the effects that horny goat weed has, uh, the estrogenic effects that it has, because we can talk for hours about testosterone and its benefits in supplementation. Um, and we had so much fun recording the Tongat Ali podcast and last month talking about uh, supplementation between men and women. But I think horny goat weed is a supplement that you know, perhaps on the outside is is just marketed or thought of as a libido enhancement for men for, you know, better erections, but it's so much more than that. And there are so many more benefits um, for men and women, and especially as we age. So even if your interest or your priorities aren't specific to libido enhancement or you know, better strength um, or stacking with your testosterone supplements, horny goat weed is a great uh, option to consider for just these other benefits as well for cognition and for mood. Um, and you will be getting some of those strength benefits and sexual benefits, but it's not just useful for those purposes. It's much, much more complex and I would say just overall beneficial. Yeah, this is kind of like a lot of people talk about ginsengs. There really is only one true ginseng, Panax ginseng. But the reason why other plants are, are called ginseng is because ginseng kind of um, refers to this panacea thing, something that can um, benefit a whole bunch of stuff. And I think in this sense, horny goatweed is similar to this ginseng panacea thing. It just affects so many different things in, in quite a subtle way too. Oh, that you can take it long term and and have this tonifying effect. As someone who's been taking horny goat weed almost daily for the past couple of months, I can talk at length about the benefits that I've experienced. But for those of you who haven't taken the extract or who are just curious and want some more information, uh, we really, really love the exchange of questions and discussions that we have on our subreddit. Um, that's r slash Nootropics Depot. So now we are going to get into questions from our Reddit users who are listening to the podcast. And these questions are going to be specifically focused on horny goat weed and its mechanisms and its effects. So we get a lot of questions often about whether you need to cycle supplements. We get a lot of questions about what it means to start taking a supplement and if stopping that supplement is going to have negative health effects. And we're going to address all of these questions in my personal favorite segment of the podcast. So let's just jump right into it. Our first question comes from Arctic Platypus, which I know I commented before, love that username. Their question is, I know that the need to cycle most supplements is overstated, but I'm curious if there's any reason to avoid continuous daily use of horny goatweed. For instance, would constant administration reduce baseline libido and blood flow? After taking horny goat weed for months and then stopping, would there be any rebound effect? 
And this is a really relevant and important question to ask. So, Emil, what do you think? Yeah, and maybe I'm starting to sound like a bit of a broken record at this point, but really, I, I there's no reason to be cycling a lot of these supplements, and the same thing is for horny goatweed. A lot of the effects are additive, a lot of the effects take time, um, like the IGF-1 effects or some of the, the gut microbiota effects. It's something that I'm going to be taking daily for years without stopping. I don't really see a reason to stop. I think a lot of the, the benefits that it does have, uh, especially on blood flow and even libido, are additive. And I think it is... A, a lot of these things are also fixing something. So this is something that's really cool about the, the erectogenic effects, too, of horny goatweed. It seems to also have a bit of a neurotrophic effect. It, it might increase vascularization over time, might increase some of the, the nerve endings and the sensitivity there. So over time, it should have a, a better effect on libido and, and penile health, and, and I'm sure for vaginal health and the blood flow effects there are going to be additive over time, and I don't really see a mechanism in which you're going to have a big rebound. So, especially considering that maybe the estrogenic effects are a little bit adaptogenic too, this makes it a, a prime candidate to take long-term without cycling. And I think if you look in the TCM usage of this uh, herb too, you see that it's, it's kind of like a tonic herb. It's something you take often consistently, especially considering that it has anti-aging type effects, this is really something you'd likely want to be taking daily rather than cycling. And with most supplements, I really think, like you said in, in your question, the cycling is oftentimes overstated. And in my opinion, cycling doesn't really have much of a place within supplementation unless you are really trying to get specific acute effects for short periods of time. I think supplementation as a whole, its whole philosophy is kind of long-term steps toward long-term goals. And I don't think cycling fits into that kind of setup. So with that in mind, taking things more long-term, selecting things that work long-term and don't have any major safety issues associated with long-term use, Think this is the way to go. Good to know. And it makes sense because this is a similar message that we've communicated in past podcasts, but in this particular case with concerns about libido and blood flow, um, I can understand the, the hesitation or just the curiosity of what would happen when you stop taking your supplements. But to just compliment Emil's um, great answer. I would also say if you are curious about what happens um, in doing kind of a small scale experiment for your own benefit for yourself, you could try taking horny goat weed every day for a week and then don't take it the week after. You might not notice the same kind of effects as you would if you take it long term, let's say for a few months and then stop. But doing these little experiments for yourself to determine what is it doing for me taken consistently over, you know, seven days, and then what changes when I stop taking it can give you little peaks of insight into what the supplement's benefits are, and then, you know, things that the supplement is doing that you would want to continue long-term or not. So it's really up to you. Yeah, this is a, a great strategy, and the way I do it, it it's more of a, a forced cycling. I, I just when I'm running low on a supplement, I'll actually just let it run out, spend a week without it, 
then reorder, wait for it to come in, and then start it up again. So in this sense, sometimes I, I go, I haven't taken, for example, with magnesium, I kept forgetting to order more magnesium. So at a certain point, I just wasn't taking magnesium for like two or three weeks and I caught this and I was thinking, oh yeah, this is why I'm having a little bit more muscle cramping. It's because I haven't been taking magnesium. A couple days ago, I got my magnesium back in, started taking it, and then all of that went away. So I know for a fact that something like magnesium I need every day. For horny goat weed, once this 180 count bottle, I think, 180 count bottle runs out, then I'll just take a few days off, maybe a week, maybe even a few weeks, see what I miss and start it back up again. Not necessarily to cycle, but more to see what it was adding, what it wasn't adding. Maybe some things were negative about it that I wasn't liking. So being able to cycle in that sense, just stopping something for a while and determining what it was doing and what it wasn't doing, I think is a very important thing to do, however you want to do that. If it presents itself more in like a traditional cycling sense, then sure, that that's maybe a good strategy. I don't think you'd necessarily get that from doing like a five days on, two days off type cycle. I honestly don't really think this does a whole lot in terms of cycling. I think if you are really going to cycle, then really take some time off. I think five days on, two days off is not necessarily the most interesting way to cycle, unless maybe it is five days out of the week you're taking higher doses of caffeine and you want to prevent some of this tolerance from happening. but. Honestly, two days is probably not enough to really reset that tolerance anyway, so most people doing a five days on, two days off type cycle might not actually really be cycling that much anyways. Absolutely, and it's important to recognize that the uh, the goal of cycling might not be achieved with the time frame that you're comfortable with, and and that's just the reality sometimes of how our bodies work. And the other part is that... Uh, with supplements that you're taking lower doses of on a daily basis, the benefits may not be as dramatic as uh, as you would expect, just as not taking the supplement might not have the same dramatic effect as you would expect either. But it's important to just observe these things for yourself, because at the end of the day, your experience is the most important, as well as just overall benefiting your own health, knowing what works well for you. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to our next question from Average AI Bot, another great name. And the question is simple, straightforward. How does it interact with Tonga and Sustanch? And we already kind of covered this throughout the podcast too. So for example, Tonga Dali might have very minor aromatase inhibitory effects. This can lead to some not so pleasant outcomes. Taking horny goatweed with it, which can induce aromatase and this is a positive effect, stacking it alongside Tangada Li could kind of offset this, some of these negative effects with the aromatase effects of Tangada Li. Furthermore, the estrogen effects of horny goatweed seem to be quite anabolic with the IGF-1 effects, and the, which is coming through the estrogen beta receptor activation via icarin and some of the estrogen biosynthesis effects because of the aromatase induction, that seems to have an anabolic effect, and that anabolic effect should be quite synergistic with higher levels of testosterone. So then both for Tangadali and Sistanch, because they both 
elevate testosterone. Stacking it with horny goat wheat should maximize, actually, the muscle hypertrophy kind of anabolic effects, which should be really interesting and might smooth out some of the, the less pleasant effects of something like Tanga Dali. For Sistange, it gets even more interesting, in my opinion, because Sistange increases growth hormone in addition to testosterone, and growth hormone and IGF-1 seem to play nice together, too. So that's probably one of the, the most interesting stacks, because you're getting this... IGF-1 increase, a growth hormone increase, a testosterone increase, and this anabolic estrogen increase. So that seems like a really good stack, and it's actually the stack that I'm taking, because I take Sistanch every day and Horny Good with every day, but I don't take Tangadali every day. That's more of an as-needed basis as a confidence booster. Awesome. Thank you for that super comprehensive answer. Now, moving right along into our next question from Solo the Sensei. The question is, can horny goat weed's mood-boosting effects be largely attributed to Icarin's testosterone mimetic properties? After all, straight testosterone certainly feels good in the right doses. You're totally right. I'm curious about this as well. Absolutely, and Solo the Sensei and I have been talking a little bit on Instagram, because I have uh, an Instagram account now where I'm posting some stuff, so we've been chatting on there a little bit. What's your uh, Instagram username, Emil? It's pretty chill, same as my Reddit username, but then underscore ND. So pretty chill underscore ND. So go follow Emil on Instagram and you too can have fascinating and insightful conversations in the DMs. Yeah, and, and just interacting with the posts and posting some interesting stuff. Actually, the, the go to cola stuff we were talking about earlier, I made a post about that. And actually, the study on the new study on Icarin and youthful gut microbiota composition, I posted there too. But we were having a, a small conversation about testosterone and DHT and the kind of mood-boosting effects it has, and Solo the Sensei has a lot of experience with this too, and definitely, testosterone is something that has profound mood-boosting effects, and DHT does too. I don't think that's where the mood-boosting effects are coming from, though, because I didn't notice them with the 50% Icarin extract at least the acute mood boosting effects. So I don't think the mood boosting effects in general are coming from the testosterone mimetic effects. I think in the 10% extract, it's due to certain flavonoids in addition to the icarin that are having GABAergic and dopaminergic effects. That's kind of what it feels like to me. However, I think over the long term, some of these testosterone mimetic effects definitely can have confidence and mood boosting effects. But I actually think the real star player here for the long-term effects, mood effects for Icarin, is actually its estrogenic modulating ability and its effects on IGF-1 rather than a more testosterone-based mood-boosting property. Because I, I get more of that testosterone kind of confidence and energy feeling from uh, Tongad and Sistanch, and I'm not necessarily getting that as much from the horny goatweed. The horny goatweed actually maybe the the mood boosting effects are more similar to ginseng which is interesting too because ginseng actually also has fairly pronounced estrogenic activity uh, by acting also actually on the estrogen beta receptor very cool and i really can't let an opportunity like this uh slip by to just acknowledge that there will be a difference in in mood benefits from something like Tangadali that's targeting testosterone specifically when comparing it to something like horny goat weed that is having more targeted estrogenic like 
effects and without getting too much into the back and forth or the the yin and yang conversation i always just like to add a little uh, star there in my own brain to remember what differences there are between different kinds of mood benefits with with different supplements so if you're a fan of panamax you might also be a fan of horny goat weed for similar reasons so now moving on to our next question, which comes from Salamanta. The question is, what are the real differences between the 10% and the 50%? The real difference is that the 10% contains more than just Icarin. The 50% pretty much just contains Icarin. And if we look at the chromatograms that come out of our instruments when we're doing the analysis, and we look at the different peaks, the 50% you pretty much just see icarin with a little bit of background noise here and there which might be some minor flavonoids in the 10% it's a different story you see this peak for icarin but you also see a, a bunch of other little peaks some more noise some other stuff and this other stuff we suspect to be flavonoids and maybe some alkaloids too like the the magnofluorine so i think in the the real difference is that the 10% contains icarin plus a bunch of other flavonoids and potentially alkaloids the 50% pretty much just contains icarin with very little else so that's the big difference absolutely and to add to that uh, to share to reshare Emil's anecdote from earlier the effect difference like the perceivable effect difference between the 10% and the 50% is that the 10% can feel a lot more acute and a lot more powerful for people because it is a full spectrum, a fuller spectrum extract, whereas the 50% can be much more targeted and clean and specific. So you have both the analytical chemistry side of the real differences, but then you also have the more experiential anecdotal side of the differences between these two extracts. So now moving on, we have a question from S1YCAT. And the question is, how does horny goat weed affect sleep patterns? And which stack would you recommend for optimal effectiveness overall? Great question. So like we discussed in the podcast, there seems to be a, a few different mechanisms going on with horny goat weed and how it enhances sleep quality. One of them might be through PDE5 inhibition, which is helping to create better circadian rhythms. The other effect is through IGF-1 uh, stimulation. And IGF-1 seems to have some good effects on slow-wave sleep, uh, producing, I think, more delta power, which indicates slightly deeper sleep. So that seems to be one of the ways in which horny goat weed is impacting overall sleep architecture, sleep patterns. In terms of a stack to take, the interesting thing about horny goat weed is that you can take it in the morning and then have benefits at night for sleep. This is not something you often see with sleep, so or with sleep supplements. So designing a stack for sleep so around horny goat weed is kind of an interesting proposition because we're looking at a stack that can be taken during the day that doesn't necessarily make you sleepy, but that then makes you sleep better at night. I have a couple of ideas slash questions. One of them being, what are other supplements that basically aid in circadian rhythms um, that you could take during the day that don't tire you out? Well, actually, and, and this again is probably a little bit of an unpopular opinion, but maybe melatonin. And there was a few years ago on Slate Star Codex, I'm actually not totally sure if it 
if it's around anymore. It's an interesting blog, but there was some controversy about it with the author. But there was an interesting article about melatonin on there where basically they were indicating that taking it like earlier in the day will better help entrain your circadian rhythm and will actually help enhance sleep better than taking melatonin right before bed, for example. So melatonin could be one you can take during the day that won't necessarily make you sleepy, perhaps, but could enhance your circadian rhythms. Maybe a better option, though, is nobilitin, because nobilitin also seems to enhance circadian rhythms, seems to be a, a pretty pronounced effect, and again, is something that you take during the day, because nobilitin actually is a little bit stimulating, too. So maybe taking horny goatweed and nobilitin together would be a really good way to just enhance circadian rhythms and enhance sleep quality without actually taking something before bed, which is also beneficial because you basically don't have to remember to take something like half an hour or an hour before bed. You simply have that in you already from the day, you took it in the morning, and now you're just sleeping better at night. So that could be an interesting stack. Another interesting stack could be those two together, and then polygala as well, and then taking polygala a few times during the day. So I found that polygala is definitely stimulating. However, the polygala also has calming effects, and these calming effects seem to outlast the stimulation. And I believe this is due to the fact that tenufolin is present in, in decent amounts, and tenufolin in research has been shown to enhance sleep quality. So I've noticed that if I take polygala during the day, I'm nice and focused, motivated, my mood is high, but then at night I can slip into this very nice state of relaxation, which then helps with sleep too. So maybe just taking polygala three times a day, which is kind of what we recommend, 100 milligrams three times a day, alongside horny goatweed and nobilidin could then help enhance the circadian rhythms, could help enhance IGF-1 levels, which can help with slow wave sleep depth, and then stacking that with polygala, which over will build up during the day and have this kind of sleep-promoting effect at night. Very cool. I'm really curious about this stack. I really like sleep support, but I haven't been taking sleep support very much recently, partially because I feel like my sleep is deeper and is benefited by horny goat weed. So I don't have recent experience combining horny goat weed daily with sleep support, but I would say that the two have very distinct effects for sleep. I find that sleep support is helpful when I'm in periods of a lot of stress and uh, I have trouble staying asleep or you know maybe I'm, I'm being interrupted, um, my sleep isn't as deep, and when I take sleep support I wake up with, you know, less of the morning jitters and and just more of a sensation of calmness. But with horny goat weed, I find that the sleep improvements, I guess, feel a little more like direct and powerful, even though I'm not waking up with the same kind of calm feeling that I take or that I get when I take sleep support. So I think these two could be interesting to combine. I don't have personal experience of putting them together, but I'm curious uh, whether this combination of horny goat weed, nobleton, and polygala would be benefited by the addition of sleep support, or 
if these things are kind of in different categories of sleep supplementation. They're definitely in different categories. So one thing horny goadweed probably will not do for you, eh, maybe if, if it's enhancing your circadian rhythms, then it might be easier to fall asleep. But it doesn't have this almost like sedative-like effect that will make you nice and calm, slow down your mental activity, and make it easier to fall asleep. That's not something horny goadweed, if you take it during the day, will do. Honestly, if you take the 10% at night, you might actually get this effect because the 10% is a little bit calming. But if you were to take the horny goadweed 10% or 50% during the day regularly, your sleep patterns are better, and then you take uh, the sleep support at night, then it will be even easier to fall asleep and your overall sleep quality will probably be even higher because that was one of the design goals behind sleep support was to actually enhance sleep quality. So yeah, they'll stack well. If, if you go for this scenario where when we think of a stack we think of taking a bunch of different ingredients together at one time so this is not necessarily a stack but more of a supplementation strategy so horny goat weed in the morning sleep support at night you're not stacking them but they're having additive effects if you look at kind of the the more downstream pathways that are being affected within the body even if horny goat weed or Icarin isn't present in your bloodstream anymore if it has indeed made your circadian rhythms better then this effect will extend and this effect will then stack with uh, sleep support which is kind of an interesting concept to consider. Very interesting and very exciting too. So exciting that I think I'm going to have to try it very soon. So now moving on to our next question from Cyclist5000. Does horny goat weed need to be taken regularly for benefits, or are the benefits acute, as if taking it two to three days per week? Yeah, I, I would definitely take horny goat weed longer. All of the anecdotal reports I've seen so far on Reddit too have kind of indicated, yes, it has an acute effect. Yes, the acute effect is nice. However, the effects on libido and blood flow, etc., improved after taking it regularly. So... There are acute effects, there are definitely acute effects when you take the 10%. However, for overall benefits and the most amount of effects that you can get from it, take it more long term. But definitely, if you just want something that acts as, a, as an acute PDE5 inhibitor, let's say you're having some issues down there and you need some extra blood flow, then take it before sexual activity and the acute effect should be there. But it will be better over time. Awesome. And our next question comes from Careful Cobbler 8359 How lovely. The question is, what effects does it have on cortisol slash the HPA axis? This is a question I also have. Yeah, and unfortunately, we forgot to touch on this in the actual broadcast. There were so many other interesting effects. Um, but we're giving you the information now. Yeah. Icarin definitely helps increase the HPA axis function and... And what is that exactly? The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So all of these different parts of, of the brain and, and the adrenal gland working together to produce glucocorticoids like cortisol, corticosterone, all of these stress hormones, basically. And when the activity of the HPA axis is disrupted, then all of these corticosterones and cortisol, it's also disrupted and can increase a lot and produce a lot of negative effects associated with these stress hormones, or they can be reduced a lot and you actually have the negative effects of too low of these compounds. So the interesting thing about stress hormones is that 
they exist on a bell curve. And if you've ever seen a bell curve, you go up, it plateaus, and then it goes down again. So if we plot on the y-axis um, mood or relaxation stress levels, and on the x-axis we have the increasing concentration of um, corticosterones, cortisol, things like that. So we're at the beginning, we have nothing, motivation and mood is low. Then we kind of move to the middle where we have this ideal concentration of these stress hormones, and then we're at the top of the bell curve. We're at the top of mental performance. We're feeling good, motivated, all of this. So peak peak levels of relaxation and mood and also sort of peak levels of these these hormones, right? And, and not yeah, relaxation is there, but it's not necessarily producing a relaxing effect. It's more balancing everything. So having a lot of stress hormones can make you feel a little bit stressed out and you want more relaxation, but kind of being right there in the middle, you have this balance between relaxation and stimulation, that, that like kind of a flow state. And that's where you want to be. You want to be at the top of this bell curve with this ideal concentration of cortisol and other stress hormones. Once you start going past this concentration and concentrations go up, like you see in stress, then this bell curve starts dropping off again and you start getting into low mood again. So being on either end of the extreme, very low levels of cortisol and stress hormones or very high levels of uh, stress hormones, those both produce similar types of effects. Demotivation, uh, difficulty remembering things. Irritability. Irritability, general uh, cognitive dysfunction almost. So you want to be in this this top of the bell curve and the better your HPA axis works, the easier it is to stay there. So you have compounds that can just straight up reduce cortisol levels or uh, mimic cortisol like the ginsenosides, or you have compounds that just increase the function of the HPA axis. And through this, you have a better overall picture or profile of these stress hormones. And that's what Icarin is doing. So it's balancing the HPA axis. Very, very cool and really important to know. I'm really glad that we got there with this question because I feel like that's a key piece of information uh, just for the benefits of Vicarin overall. So now we're moving on to the next question from White with Navy. And the question is, can it be taken sublingually? Can we play with the dosages of this nootropic? Nah, you can try taking the 50% sublingually, but then you're looking at 100 milligrams of powder. And honestly, we have a bit of a not accurate picture of what sublingual dosing actually is. We think that just putting like 100 milligrams of powder out under our tongue for five minutes, that's sublingual dosing. It's not. You're probably absorbing half a milligram, maybe a milligram of material, and the rest you are just swallowing. But my theory actually is that a lot of these compounds are bitter and bitter... Um, stimulation the stimulation of the bitter receptors on the tongue can actually have cognitive effects too so not necessarily a placebo effect but i think a lot of the times when we do take things sublingually a lot of the effects that we experience are not necessarily the active compounds absorbing and becoming active it might be some other mechanism so with that in mind we're looking at a compound where we have to absorb about 50 milligrams to have good effects and we have to do this from 100 milligrams of powder, which is not the pure compound. You can definitely try it. I'm actually kind of curious what would happen. Maybe there is some unexplained 
mechanism at play here where sublingually would absorb quickly, but I wouldn't get my hopes up about this. Just take it orally, it works well orally, and then you don't have to deal with this taste in your mouth. Although it doesn't taste that bad, so yeah, I'm curious. giving it a try. Out of 10, 10 being extraordinarily bitter, like Tangata Lee bitter, um, to one being not bitter at all, where would you rank horny goatweed powder? Definitely towards the low end of the scale, probably like one or two. It's, it's not very bitter. I'm not the best person to ask here, perhaps, because I'm I, I've had plenty of uh, I guess exposure therapy with. You're quite uh, <laughs> adventurous with bitter compounds. Yes, with bitter a, extracts. A, and I like bitter tastes, and so it doesn't really bother me that much. So for someone who's more sensitive to bitterness, perhaps that's more of an issue. But if we're talking about some of these compounds acting on the bitterness receptors and producing some sort of psychological response there. Maybe that's not happening as much with something like horny goatweed. And and yeah, who knows? Maybe we can absorb enough of Icarin and some of these other compounds, but they're fairly large compounds. And yeah, I wouldn't get my hopes up too much about absorbing a full dose of um, Icarin sublingually unless you're keeping it under your tongue for at least an hour or more. Which would be a very, very long time to have that amount of powder in your mouth. But yes. Uh, to answer the second part of your question, can you play with the dosages of this nootropic? Uh, yes, you can definitely play with the dosages. You can try a slightly higher dose. You can try a slightly lower dose. Uh, the 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 general advice that we give about dosages is that our recommended dosage on the Nootropics Depot website uh, comes from a lot of beta testing and a lot of discussion and deliberation and research and research um, very important the most important aspect of this to get to an ideal dosage and so the dosage that's recommended has been verified and researched and discussed amongst our team and that's why we typically say follow the recommended dosage that should work for you if it doesn't work for you or if you want to try a slightly higher dosage or a slightly lower dosage, you are totally able to do that. Um, But we've done that work for you already. So if you want to experiment, we always encourage experimentation, safe experimentation. But at the end of the day, the recommended dosage is there for a reason. And we find that typically that dosage works the best for general populations. Yeah, totally agree there. Cool. So moving on to our next question, which comes from RaptR69. The question is, what are the long-term effects of daily use? Will I gain a tolerance to PDE5 inhibitors? And this is a similar question to something we've had um, above, but I am curious, especially about this second question about gaining tolerance to other PDE5 inhibitors. What do you think, Emil? Yeah, I think it's Icarin is a PDE5 inhibitor. It's a significant PDE5 inhibitor, and we see the classic PDE5 inhibitor effects there. However, it's not very strong. So daily use, I, I really wouldn't worry about any sort of down or up regulation, like significant up or down regulation of PDE5 enzyme. Um, so yeah, I think that's fine for daily use and it's I've been taking it for a month and I haven't really noticed any sort of change in in the positive blood flow effects. This is really good to know. So moving on to our next question from JCC80. 
The question is, what would be the actual mechanism behind this supplement increasing libido? For context, I am a male on, let's call it, TRT+. At any given time, I will be slightly high out of range for both total and free testosterone. So, putting aside any potential testosterone increases, which would be irrelevant to me, can this be useful as a libido booster? My libido is not very high at all. So as we discussed throughout the podcast, these libido effects are probably estrogenic in nature. So for people who have naturally high testosterone levels with low libido or high testosterone because of reasons we won't mention here, then yes, taking horny goat weed could still have these libido effects. In fact, these libido effects may apply more to you anyways because the estrogenic profile might be a little bit messed up too. So enhancing this estrogenic activity seems to enhance libido. Estrogen seems to be important for libido for men too. So I think this is really the the magic of horny goat weed. It's this estrogenic libido type effect. Awesome. So now going on to our next question from Vital to Recovery. The question is, my question is in regards to horny goat weeds CYP3A4 inducing effect. From my research, horny goat weed begins to increase CYP3A4 metabolism after repeated use. However, I've never been able to find a dose or time frame it takes before this becomes a problem. I take a few pharmaceuticals that are metabolized by CYP3A4, so any increase in metabolism could be problematic. So there's a lot in this question that I can't really touch on, but I'll just touch on just the CYP3A4 effect. I did a bit of research on this. Uh, one research study indicated that it has very weak CYP3A4 induction effects, meaning it will increase the amount of CYP3A4 enzyme. Another study showed that there was no interaction between epimedium and CYP3A4, or at least not significant. So I think this kind of indicates that perhaps there is a very mild induction of CYP3A4 enzyme. However, it's probably not very significant. And this, this is on a bit of a different tangent, but the CYP or the cytochrome P450 enzymes actually fluctuate in accordance with our circadian rhythm. So if you actually look at some of the differences between uh, daytime or nighttime levels of CYP3A4, they are quite different. And this is definitely more of a swing than would be caused by this potentially very minor or non-existent induction of CYP3A4. Our next and final question comes from ResponsiblePen3082. And the question is, I've seen mentions or studies of horny goat weed increasing estrogen slash reducing testosterone, but also recently mentions slash studies of it reducing testosterone loss slash increasing testosterone. What is the net result of continuous usage? This is a great last question because it really sums up the entirety of the podcast, basically, where we talk about these estrogenic effects and the uh, testosterone enhancing effects. And basically, it's optimizing both. So it's not really decreasing any of them. Icarin itself seems to act as a testosterone mimetic. It also appears to increase testosterone production to a minor degree. But more importantly is that horny goatweed definitely is quite estrogenic, positively estrogenic, and also enhances testosterone. So the complete net picture here is an increase in both, and that's good. Awesome. And a great way to end this month's podcast episode all about horny goat weed. 
So we went kind of all over the body. We went from the cognitive benefits of horny goat weed to the sleep benefits to the gut health benefits and talked about the libido benefits of this supplement as well. And I think for anyone who's curious about taking horny goat weed who hasn't tried it yet, I would encourage you to give it a shot and see how you like it. It's something that I really enjoy having as a part of my daily stack. And I like it for all of the reasons that we've described. And I'm glad to have learned about the gut health uh, benefits as well, because that wasn't something that I was aware of before this conversation. So with all of our In Search of Insight podcasts, we hope to give you the most relevant and specific research and conversations about supplements, about nootropics, and about optimizing your health overall. So with that in mind, if you have questions about anything that was discussed on today's podcast or further questions about horny goat weed, you can always interact with us and ask us a question on our subreddit. That's r slash nootropicsdepot. And Emil, pretty chill, or myself, nootropicsdepotguru, would be happy to chat with you and discuss these questions and these exciting discoveries that we're making together. Absolutely. Yeah. Come join the conversation and and follow me on Instagram too, if you are there and we can chat there and interact there. And I have some, some interesting content as well. So lots of ways to interact with us and get interesting bits of content and really tap into our knowledge base too, which if we just kept it to ourselves would kind of be a waste. So we really want to put it out there and share it with all of you. And this podcast is one of the ways we do it. Reddit is one of the ways we do it. Instagram now, emails, blogs, all of that. So enough to learn. Absolutely. Plenty to learn. And there's always new research to explore and new conversations to be had. So don't hesitate to ask your question and to get involved. Thank you so much for your continued support and sharing in search of insight with your friends. You can listen to the podcast on lots of different streaming platforms, and we hope that you've enjoyed this month's episode all about horny goat weed. That's all we have for you for now. So without further ado, we will say goodbye and see you next time. See you next time.